Hello, Gareth here, and I'm um, just introducing today's episode. I wanted to give you a little bit of a prelude to let you know uh, what we're going to be talking about and why it's been so long. And really, on that topic, I don't have an excuse. This is an interview we recorded with uh, Dr. Rob King, who's an interesting researcher who studies both violence and sexuality using primarily evolutionary paradigms. So applying evolutionary biology and ideas from evolutionary psychology and doing um, original research, which looks at things like spree killing. And uh, it was one of the most interesting interviews we've done and we've had some fantastically interesting interviews on this series so far but it was quite a while ago and uh, for that I can only apologize I sort of got distracted with work and uh, just various forms of procrastination so my apologies Uh, it's a great interview it goes all over the place we talk about everything from hibistrophiles the uh, women who fall in love with psychopaths and murderers to the headhunters of Borneo to Myra Hindley um, to the Shankill butchers Freud's mistakes and Margaret Mead's mistakes and uh, everything in between and particularly uh, towards the second half of the interview the first half focuses on spree killing and the psychology behind that and the uh, the evolutionary motivations behind murder in general and the second half we get into some of the critiques of evolutionary psychology so it's it's a wide-ranging discussion and uh, really should be of interest both to lay people and uh, psychology students perhaps um, also. And uh, yeah, so I really hope you enjoy it. And if you do enjoy it, you can check out Dr. King's work. He has a blog on the Psychology Today website called Hive Mind, where you can uh, find uh, general discussions. And you can also find his work, uh, links to his papers at the UCC website. And he's a very approachable and engaging speaker and writer. So I really do recommend looking into his work and looking at some of the, the many um, books and papers that he references in the discussion, some of which we will link Uh, in the notes of the podcast. Um, Once again, sorry for the delay. Hope you enjoy the show. And please do feel free to comment on Twitter, on my website, garrettstack.com, or Facebook, or wherever you like. If you've enjoyed the program, if you have any more questions, or indeed if you have any guests that you'd like us to speak to, or you yourself are a psychological researcher um, or operating in a tangential profession and you think you'd like to talk to us on the record, we're really, really fascinated in answering really the bigger questions about um, life and mind using the lens of psychology. And we'd love to talk to people whose work attends to those um, topics. So I guess today's episode is answering the question or at least exploring the issue of um, why people are evil. Why do they kill? Why are we drawn to those who kill? Without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Rob King at UCC. Hello and welcome to another episode of Psychology in Mind. My name is Gareth Stack and I'm joined as always by Dr. Andrew Allen. Dr. Andrew P. Allen. Andrew Allen, PhD. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, we, our guest today is uh, Dr. Rob King. Hi there and thanks for inviting me. So Rob, uh, how would you describe your research, your areas of interest? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I started off by doing a PhD and uh, I, whenever anyone asks me about my PhD, I sort of say, well, I'm not going to tell you because it will sound like a line. Uh, and that invariably means that they want to hear more about it. Um, I started off by studying female orgasm 
uh, because there was a puzzle in the field and I thought I had a solution to the puzzle and I uh, approached a number of people who were leaders of the field and said I think I have a solution to the puzzle and one of them Jay Belsky got back in touch with me and said you have an interesting perspective on this go away and learn some more biology and maths and I came back um, with a more uh, nuanced proposal a year a year later and he took me on as a PhD student and my life sort of changed direction <laughs> now I'm here so we've come to you because our, our question today, so we, t- we tailor each episode around a question. And I guess our question today, broadly speaking, is about evil. Are people evil? And more specifically about murder. So some of your research has touched on killers and killing and the act of killing. Um, what can you tell us about that? Okay, well, the, uh, well I had a, a, a student, uh, Nadia Butler, a few years back, and she came with, a, with an interesting idea about uh, spree killers. And I thought it was a, I thought it was a fascinating idea. She did a huge amount of work um, putting together a database of spree killers, and we decided for various reasons to use American databases because they're much richer, more reliable. You can get multiple sources, that kind of stuff. And then we analysed said database, and it turned out there was um, a kind of a very interesting pattern. So spree killers are people who go into a public place. Uh, they kill five or more, uh, three or more in one area, typically. Uh, sometimes it's family members, sometimes it isn't. And what we found was that there were very, very broadly two types when we analysed the, 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 the data. And the younger ones were not mirror images of the older ones. So the younger ones tended to be around 20 years old. Sometimes they were school shooters. They tended to have a history of mental illness, um, school refusal, um, trouble with the police. Uh, they were essentially on a road to reproductive oblivion. Uh, the older ones tended to be in their mid to late 40s. They had families. Uh, they were quite often in the process of losing said families or losing said jobs. And they were more likely to die in the process of their spree killing. And they were very, very different characters. It wasn't that sort of the older ones were just the younger ones who had somehow got away with it when they were younger and then, and then got bigger and uglier. They were very different profile. And that was interesting. And looking at it through a, an evolutionary lens, it made a certain kind of sense because the age profiles patterned to the profiles of status acquisition or loss in males. And status acquisition or loss is particularly important in males because it's what makes you reproductively interesting. So the younger ones seemed to be on a road to reproductive nowhere. Uh, they weren't able to gain status. The older ones were losing status and in vulnerable um, now, I, mean, I have to say this, this this is looking at the data from a very demographic perspective. This doesn't enable us to make predictions about individuals. Um, we're, we're obviously we're talking about vulnerable individuals, some of whom get pushed into this and some of whom don't. And this can disturb people because when you look at certain horrible acts from a demographic perspective, people think you you might be lessening the sense of evil or lessening the sense of personal responsibility. Um, and I would just say I don't really have much to say about the sense of personal responsibility. I'm not not attempting to adjudicate on that. But there are similar demographic patterns that you can find with, say, rape. Um, rape is predictable on a demographic level from uh, operational sex ratios. Now, it's not the only variable, but as the number of spare males goes up, uh, particularly the number of spare young males goes up in an area, the incidence of rape goes up. And it's one of the factors. So you can you can see why, obviously, expositions of these things would be highly contentious, because as, as you mentioned, we, we, we want to think of them as personal responsibilities. And even if they're even if we know that there are many a multifactorial reason why someone might do a violent or a sexual crime in this case, that even though we, we might acknowledge theoretically that there could be all these causes, ultimately we can't uh, abdicate the responsibility and it could be seen as um, to do to, as to, to explain is to forgive or to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to reduce blame. But, but I think what, what you're talking about is quite interesting, this, this idea of 
we've all seen in the US media especially but of course it happens in other places too the spree killer the person mm-hmm. going postal and what, what you seem to be saying is that there's two distinct subpopulations and what they share is essentially that um, they're men and that they've lost mm-hmm. access to reproduction specifically yes and so that that led on to a rather uh, an interesting second study um, which um, which we're in, in the in the process of writing up at the moment uh, which was looking at the people who are the recipients of this kind of display. So you can see spree killing to some extent as a public display. I mean, it is highly public. It's intended to, it, it has a lot in common with terrorism in that respect. You're attempting to disrupt the existing order in a very public way. It's not like serial killing. Okay, they're the two really very, very distinct. Serial killers are not typically public about what they're doing. Um, although, once again, it is it is sex related. Um, in the... Um, in the case of the younger ones, they're, they're much less likely to, to die or you know, commit suicide via cop. They're much more likely to end up in prison. And they have fans. Uh, they have female fans. They have large numbers of female fans. And our subsequent studies looking at some of the patterns in those fans. And that's interesting, too, because we have two very different types of fans. One, which is the majority, are interested in um, just celebrity generally, particularly sort of the bad boys. And there's nothing much to distinguish them from uh, from people who are just sort of uh, interested in fanboys generally. And there's another subtype, which is very much um, in the minority. And they hate the, the other ones very openly, you know, hate the other ones, who are much more interested in the minutiae shy of the killing um they're much more worrying um if i was uh, in law enforcement and i was looking at some of their fan sites i would be paying close attention to some of their sort of plans and interests uh, because they they have some very worrying plans and interests now all of this might be pure fantasy um but they certainly are they're, they're identifiably interested in the killing and they're interested in the in the killers and they 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 write to them in prison sometimes they marry them i would say plans are, is that what you mean by like plans that they have like yeah they're hybristophile i do wonder i am going to deny i'm a clinician uh, I'm, a, I'm a researcher i hang around a lot of clinicians um and i consult with them because you know they're in the next office and they and i teach on the course that feeds into the clinical psychology course you know, and all the rest of it um and i i took this uh, this this finding the 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 hybristoph- sorry I should say something about hybristophiles so hybristophiles are people who are in love with people who do bad things hubris is the Greek for um, arrogance and um, it's uh, that people can actually fetishize that and it's it's become a sort of semi technical term for people who fetishize not just bad boys but really bad boys um, and I, anyway so I, I I took the the work that my second student did looking at the the fan sites of of hybristophiles and uh, they they fell into these these two patterns the ones who were just sort of interested in 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 fame generally or at least they weren't particularly distinguishable from those and the ones who were really interested in the minutiae of killing and he said no this 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 you should publish this because you know no, no one else has said this before um and i sort of trust his judgment so we're we're sticking that into peer review as well it's amazing the amount of um the, the responses we've got from reviewers have been fascinating um one day when this is all published i will do a talk just on the getting the pieces published because I mean it's been a it's been a fascinating tale um and I I, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to I, I, I the peer review process is something that needs protecting and uh, and I, I'm also very grateful to reviewers even when they're negative um but it's been very interesting how many of the reviewers um are completely inconsistent with one another for example a lot of people have said things that flat out contradict one another um a lot of people have said things that are impossible uh, a couple of people have said things on my website that i then thought i think i've read this in a peer review somewhere and then gone back and checked the website and it's been scrubbed i think why well, isn't this interesting so it's certainly it's 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 ra- it's ruffled feathers yeah what are things are people saying um <laughs> um there, there was there were certain things that were said on uh, because 
while it was in the middle of peer review, um, and and it still is, it still is being uh, being peer reviewed at the moment. Um, I did the um, uh, I did did the blog post because a couple of friends of mine who are sort of more sort of journalistic said, "Aren't you working on something like this?" And it was at the time of the Vegas killing. Um, Aren't you working on something like this? And I said, "I am." It's in peer review, and they said, "Well, this Vegas killing, everyone's running around saying no one's ever seen anything like this before." And I remember talking to you at that conference where you said, "Well, you know, people have seen things like that before, and we're, we're about to publish on it. Isn't it worth getting it out there?" Um, I thought, "Yeah, all right, I'll do a I'll do a blog post about it because I think the idea is interesting." And we got a huge response. So it was the biggest hit on the blog I've ever got. I think it's it's over thirty thousand reads now, which you know, for somebody like me, is would be quite a lot. I'm typically in sort of the five to ten thousands. Um, and there was a lot of commentary. Some of it was positive, and some of it was very very negative. And some of that negativity I think is because we talked about guns and guns are a very sensitive issue in America and we only we, we included a few controls about guns so one of the controls that we had in the data were uh, was was there open carry or not um, in the uh, in the particular states where the spree killings occurred because we were just interested whether or not that affected it and it, as it happened it didn't but we just had it in there as a control but various people have, have emailed me saying things like you know you do know that you won't be able to publish anything that even sounds like it's about gun control in American journals now I've no idea whether that's true or not but certainly people have approached me and said that now i've got no interest in you know wading in on gun control it's not my area of expertise not something i'm pretending to know anything about we just put it in there because we thought it was a something that was a legitimate type of scientific control for the data um just to step back a little bit um can we just so we're talking about your first piece of research and these kind of two demographics of killers i think like against stepping aside from the obvious controversiality of the idea we can all at least intellectually understand the idea that you might have these two, two groups of let's say loser males for mm. want of a better term who are excluded from the ability to have children or mm. pursue the activities that lead to that even you know if they even if the motivation is proximate rather than ultimate right. but but the murder part is the part yeah. that 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 seems odd especially when it comes to as you say spree killings yeah. even if you're enraged at a particular person you're you're a person who's vulnerable or damaged in some way and you your anger or rejection turns into to, to something murderous mm. Where is it that this, and obviously I'm asking you to speculate on, on, on reasoning when, when you've got this demographic data and that's a different mm. thing, but where is it that, that you, what's your understanding of why that might turn into, you know, actually going out and, and uh, killing or trying to kill a, a large number of people? Okay, well, I mean, firstly, the, the, the second lot, the older ones, I mean, quite, quite a lot of them uh, had children uh, and they had, but they were often their children were being taken away. I mean, that was a, th- or they might have reasonably feared that their children were being taken away because uh, wife or partner was, was leaving them. Um, so they're, they're not they're not to be understood in the same terms. In the case of the first ones, um, so is, is, is the question what, how, why, why would this work? I mean, no, in, in a modern circumstance, it doesn't typically work very well yeah. because we, we have... So it's the motivation know, rather than the efficacy, I guess. I'm well, we have, we, we, have, we have police forces and, uh, and a rule of law, but that's that's quite a recent thing. Um, I mean, it, 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 we don't have to go back too far into human past to find um, people who um, noisily and publicly kill a lot of people being reproductively very successful. OK, so, for example, a few years, a few years back, I was in the uh, jungles in Borneo and um, there was a guy there who was, um, he was a, a chef in a, in a King's Cross restaurant but he was now being a tour guide in Borneo and he was in a village called Monosopiat and the, the village was named after his ancestor Monosopiat and he took took us to the uh, to the headroom um, and the, the the headroom was filled with skulls there were 39 skulls 
that were all there and they'd all been preserved and they'd all been killed by this guy Monosopiad and he was the village's hard case you know, he was the reason why the village was as successful as it was because anyone who messed with them got their head chopped off and stuck on a spike now this is not going back that far this is going to going back into the you know late 1800s when that was happening and um, the, the legend was that, that Monosopiad um, was eventually chased out of the village because he was making free with everybody's wives and daughters and would get drunk and pick fights with people and eventually all the guys got together and chased him out but up until that point he was a very useful person to have around partly because he publicly killed people and he was reproductively very successful but, yeah, just, <laughs> just to play devil's advocate yeah. I think that's quite a different phenomenon and that ties into um, so that I, I know there's research indicating that the majority of you know uh, date rape is from mm. high status males rather than low status males so it's, it's more like it's a Ooh, okay um, well, I'm, uncom- it, I'm uncomfortable going into fields I haven't looked at but for the sake of argument I could, yeah. be, I could be wrong um, but it, it's from, from the research I read it it indicated it was more a spillover of you know overconfident making mm-hmm. the moves and ignoring the signs of no or the explicit right, no, yeah. rather than someone creeping up in an alley and we know that intimate sure, partner yeah. violence is more common than strange violence um, someone like that or indeed Gen- Genghis Khan who's mm. a you know um, a highly dominant individual uh, within their society and then goes on to reproduce mm. that, that's something that we historically have understood and known about but it seems that there's something quite different and and it's hard to understand how it could be effective to be mm-hmm. someone of a very low status murdering everyone in your village or, or mm. to try to get to a mate in, in the historic um, environment well I, d- I don't suppose I, I don't know if anyone would argue that the murder itself is adaptive it, it would be the, um, the the jealous protection of your status with the um, the possible consequence that you will um, kill anybody or, or, or hurt or at least produce a credible threat of harm to anyone who threatens that status that I mean that's the bit that, that would potentially be under, under selection pressure um, I mean in, in places where um, there aren't laws, then your ability to protect your reputation um, is your is your only protection. I mean, you, know, you see this with drug dealers, for example. Uh, so, I mean, for a credible threat to exist, yeah. it has to be potentially real. Yeah, I, absolutely. Because other, because if and, and I mean, it's, it's the same as the logic of rage, which is essentially the logic of chicken, isn't it? You know, if I um, if we're playing chicken and I'm driving at you, um, and I and I visibly rip the steering wheel out and throw it out of the window, now you have to get out of my way, or we'll both die. I, I have now I've given myself over to irrationality, and rage is a kind of um, it's kind of throwing the steering wheel away, isn't it? It's a it's a, it's a visible, hard-to-fake signal that um, you are not to be messed with. And it's only very recently that that, that, that hasn't been useful to males. You know, pe- people who look at things like, I don't know, say people who look at something like the Three Musketeers, and they think, oh, these, you know, these are men of honour, and um, isn't that wonderful? And they, they settle their fights with jewels, and they and they look at drug dealers stabbing each other. Go, oh, this is disgusting. You know, this is uh, this is low life behaviour. They are deeply confused people. They're, it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, men who jealously protect their honour with a credible threat of violence and potentially lethal violence are doing what you need to do in a in a lawless environment to, to protect yourself and, and potentially your loved ones because nothing else is going to do it. So so to, to go on to the second part of that you were talking about um, the attraction and we've all heard of you know, Jeffrey Dahmer getting mm. love letters in prison the right. attraction to serial killers and the different subtypes people are into that. And this is from women I don't know that was from Jeffrey I mean I didn't know that yeah, about Jeffrey Dahmer yeah. but it doesn't surprise Apparently. me. Apparently. If it's from women they are yes. deeply wasting their time. Absolutely yeah. well even know. even more ironic. Triply so yeah. But, but um, again we can all understand like the village strongman in a historic mm. environment in in a tribal society or even a medieval society um, the advantage of being attracted to that person whether it be because they're you know, physically mesomorphic or because mm. they hold high status but it seems quite quite odd to picture someone being attracted to 
uh, a spree killer mm. or an attempted spree killer someone who who had low status was let's say a geek in school or someone being divorced by their wife and you know took a gun or planned to what's mm. the what's the attraction there is it just celebrity or is it something else <laughs> that's a very good question um and i don't think we've really um plumbed the uh, uh the depths of it so that the, the, the second study the one that amber did um the uh, the one where she was looking at the fan sites and comparing the the differences uh, with the way uh, the fans um, pictured themselves with either the um, uh, with, with 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 the killers, um, some of them seem to have de- definitely romantic designs. I mean, there, there, there are some who call themselves homies, for example, and they they have all these pictures of themselves with James Holmes. He was the one who killed all the people in the theatre, and so there'll be pictures of him, often quite um, <coughs> quite cutesy pictures of of them with their arms around him, and he's got orange hair and sort of little messages like you know ignore all the haters and uh, we can be together forever and it's i mean if it, if it, it it's I mean, it's startling that somebody would be thinking like that about somebody like him but they don't seem to be particularly interested in the fact that he's killed people they don't they just seem to be interested in the fact that he's a celebrity and people are paying him attention the other lot the the rather darker subset the sort of the five five percent of them um they're very much more interested in the killing and um they will have um extensive descriptions of how they'd like to perhaps join in on it um or they'd like to be witness to it or they'd um you know, they, they 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 would find that uh, find that erotic themselves and that that immediately makes you start thinking of you know people like myra hindley rose west those kinds of characters who were you know to some extent instigators and if they weren't instigators they were certainly active participants in the killing themselves and they're 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 eroticizing it do you see that's interesting because you often see myra hindley portrayed in you know in, in articles in the broadsheets or in media um, coverage or dramatizations as a sort of a passive participant so mm. this is a frequent trope someone lured into almost like a cultish mm. slavish uh, deluded state um, by someone who's psychopathically evil and violent mm. um, do, you, do you think that's a mistake and yeah I think people people have been very fo- I've been fooled um, I um I mean, I know I know people who've uh, who, who knew Meyer in prison, um, and she was still collecting Nazi memorabilia uh, right up to the end of it. No, she was always fascinated by that stuff, um, and she was fascinated by it from a, from an early age. And, and I mean, a lot of the a lot of the Nazi stuff, of course, has a lot of that very sadistic sexualized sexualized torture as as part of it um and that was that was a lot of the stuff that she she was she was into no i mean no there, there's no there, i mean there's the fact that we study the psychology of this is no reason uh, for anyone to think that somebody's sort of to be absolved from moral responsibility i mean you, you said earlier this this idea sort of to understand is to forgive and every time i i hear that those remember jerry foder the philosopher last year he, he died last year oh, was, yeah um, Jerry Fodor was uh, was famous for whenever when anyone said all oh, to understand is forgive he would sort of thump the table and go no sometimes it can just sharpen your contempt because <laughs> <laughs> Fodor didn't didn't mess about um, now I don't always agree with Jerry Fodor about stuff but you know, he has he has a point there I mean the fact the fact that somebody is the fact that we can explore the psychological processes underlying a lot of these behaviours doesn't mean that somehow we we sort of go oh yeah that's all right then you know? it's kind of interesting with, I'm, I'm still trying <laughs> to fully get my head around like say with the the these communities like incels and these involuntary yeah. celibate men like there's a sense of um there's been some recently high profile cases where they were involved in like spree killing mm. um and i i'm trying to understand is there kind of a distinction between acting out like just sort of a destructive urge just to kind of get back at people or mm. is there is there always like some unconscious uh, it could be it could be multiple ones. I, I wouldn't suggest I, I wouldn't for a moment suggest that our study was you know the the the, the final word on picking this it just seemed like an angle that no one else had taken uh, look at it i mean other people have said before that that status was important um we weren't the first people to say that status is important but i think we were the first to say that if you look at it through a life history lens then status affects men in different ways at different ages 
ages um, and that it's reproductively important and it's, it ties into these these kinds of things um, yeah I mean, the, I mean the, the internet has lifted the lid off some very unpleasant aspects of um, particularly male but also female sexuality is um, that status pursuit reflected in the victim profiles because something I've always wondered when you see I, I think back to the the Columbine massacre mm. which is the big the big one that got the first huge amount of media attention here and you had the 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 perpetrators I suppose um, not not shooting the bullies who had bullied them mm. but shooting other kids mm. and I've always wondered why and who they shot and what, what maybe in general rather than that specific case but that's a good question I don't know the answer um, I I would I would speculate that they're, they're, shoot, they're shooting the people who um, they, um, they they felt particular grudges against. But if, if they didn't, that 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 is interesting. I, I, I mean, I would take issue with the idea that this is a new thing that's happening, though. Um, it's it's new that it's happening um, in things like schools with guns. But uh, what, what, one of the things that we found um, was that this, there's quite a lot of attempted spree killings in countries where guns aren't as available. So China has quite a lot of knife attacks, for example. We found plenty of car attacks. Uh, in the UK and one big one in Wales, but they tend not to, they tend not to go onto the statistics of spree killings because typically knives and knives and, and cars just aren't very efficient weapons. Guns have been designed to be a very effective way of giving you know somebody who's comparatively weak the ability to kill dozens of people which they previously wouldn't have been able to do. Um, what about the, the social like, contagion aspect of that? Do you, is, oh, is it true that people? Uh, per, it, once it becomes like I, I think back to Durkheim's suicide stuff mm. in the 19th century where he found that media depictions of suicide increase suicidality is it is it just a, an artifice that we're seeing more spree killing now actually we're not and it's just being covered more or is it that people are seeing maybe people in distress or in these very negative mind states are saying well one solution is I could always take a gun to school or I could mm. drive a car into a group of people or whatever well there were there were lots more opportunities to get involved in combat in the past you know, the, um, the, 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 the ability to display your prowess publicly and to show everyone that you weren't to be messed with is something that was was freely available up until quite recently yeah you know, and it, I mean take take an American hero like um Jeremiah Johnson um, they, they made movies there was a Robert Redford movie about him um, and uh, they, they, they don't show the bit I'm about to tell you about so there's, there's a there's a statue to Jeremiah Johnson um, where his, his nickname I think his nickname's on the base of it because he was called Liver Eating Johnson that was his that was his nickname in the in the 1800s and the reason he was called Liver Eating Johnson is because that's what he used to do he would go and he would attack uh, Indian reservations well they wouldn't be reservations uh, back then they would just be Indian settlements uh, and he would uh, butcher men women and children uh, he would eat body parts and he would uh, display said body parts on poles outside his house which were then tourist attractions People on the riverboats would go past and they would look at the bit, the body parts that Liver Eating Johnson was displaying that week. Uh, just to, again, play yeah. out Devil's Advocate. No, no, it's fine. Um, famously, you know, um, during the, the Great War and the mm. Boer War and the early part of the 20th century, um, the great difficulty they found was getting people to kill at all. Mm. So there's this huge social opprobrium uh, encultured against violence, which seems to conflict with this idea that we are, certainly as men, um, Obviously, not just innately violent, but innately predisposed towards displaying or, mm. or achieving status through violence. Um, what, what do you say? Is that a... Blimey. Okay, there's, well, there's, there's a lot of complicated things to unpack there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to get people to be violent um, without um, dehumanising 
the the opponents or without without challenging their their their, their status you do either of those two things and people get violent very very quickly um so yes i mean they and they and they learn this in the first world war just just li- li- lining people up who uh, frequently had more in common with the people in the in the trenches uh, 100 yards away um famously they would set up these reciprocal arrangements with each other you know where they would um they, they would shoot uh, it was sharpshooters would would shoot a pattern in the wall to show that they they could do this if they wanted to um but they they even though they couldn't communicate in language they were setting up reciprocal agreements uh, because if if you shell your uh, your enemy's um supply lines you can shell yours very easily so they would they would have these sort of uh, these these de facto truces and the, the generals realized this and so they started moving people about it's one of the reasons they started using gas and gas isn't tactically a particularly useful weapon but you can't you can't deliberately miss with it and you, you set off a load of gas in an area and people get gas so not only is it gruesome i mean it, and it, you know, it's shocking sort of thing to happen um so that that sets up certain kinds of uh, feelings of um of resentment and desires for revenge um you 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 can't you can't deliberately miss with it um and also things like those the the first world war blitzkrieg raids where they would have these these raids at night they would deliberately move troops around all of that kind of stuff was essentially uh, this was psychological warfare but it was psychological warfare on your own side to ensure that the the men wouldn't set up those kind of reciprocal arrangements and would so, uh, enable them because the moment war really starts when you start killing each other it is not hard to find atrocities i mean that just that, i mean that 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 happens really quickly Did, have you been watching that ken burns documentary uh recently so there, there'd been a documentary about the vietnam war and there's a guy on it i can't remember his name off the top of my head but he he does tours of um uh schools and things now and he talks about what it was like to be a combatant and um he said uh, he, he remembers the exact instant. He said, I made a deal with the devil. It was when a buddy of his was killed by a bouncing Betty mine. This is one which fires out ball bearings laterally. It would have cut his his mate in half. And he, he said, he, he said, I only ever killed one one human. I only ever killed one person. And it was that first person I killed. And he could still picture his face. And he said, but afterwards, but I smoked lots of gooks, you know, and I killed lots of, I can't remember. There's various sort of racial epithets he uses. But he, he just, there was a switch that just dehumanized people. And once that switch went on, um, he, he said, because I, I couldn't, you know, that first one I killed stuck with me. There's no way I could carry on doing that. I'm going to go mad. I can't be here and kill human beings. So I don't. I don't see them as human. You know, and that's that's the switch, isn't it? So so what is it that's happening now? I, I know, again, you made the point that people have done this historically and so on. But like, you know, in, in I don't know, Dublin in, in 1965, mm. n- nobody was going in spree killings. In, in the United States in 1955, nobody was going to their school or very few mm. people with their father's gun, even though guns were just as ubiquitous. Now, obviously, automatic weapons weren't as ubiquitous, mm. but that's about scale rather than just doing the act. You know, um, I was reading a, a short story the other day um, and uh, I think James Patrick Kelly's short, mm. sci-fi short story and there's a little boy and it's in uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and his father you know tells him you know get your get your 35 and go down to this and it was sort of epi- endemic to have a, access to, to mm. firearms more so than today but you didn't have these kinds of uh, genocidal attacks Oh, well, I wouldn't call them genocidal. Um, I Sorry, mean, they just, I mean, they're, they're, genocide is a very sort of specific sure, sure. thing, meaning you're trying to wipe out a, a, a race. <laughs> um, would you, the, uh, certainly the, the historical data we had didn't suggest that there was particularly um, an increase. I would have to, I would have to sit down and have a, a detailed look at whether it's on the increase. I would be surprised if it is on the increase. Um, there may be kind of lulls in time, like what you said about kind of that particular 
violence in general is on the decrease. I mean, that's even when you take all the spree killings into account. And various statisticians will wade in and go, you know, people are making too much of a fuss about spree killings. And they're often the same statisticians will say, oh, we're making too much of a fuss about terrorism. Well, because, I mean, the point about things like Mm -hmm. terrorism and spree killings is to is to make the kind of statement that it's almost impossible to ignore. so, so you're saying that that if I'm getting you right, and obviously yeah. I know, look, I'm pulling you on data you haven't necessarily got, but that there actually would have been the same kinds of inc- incidents historically, mm. and they either weren't recorded or they were uh, reported in a different way. Because the historic narrative that we always hear is that there was this, I guess, the first big attack is the University of Texas. I think it's like the late '60s. I could mm. be getting the date wrong. Where the, the student goes in and he lines up a group of women and shoots them. And then there was a oh, that's actually in Canada. I'm getting mixed up. The University of Texas was a was a bell tower one. Oh yes. But I'm not I'm no expert on on spree killers. But but you know before that time it it, it seems to have not existed. But you're saying oh it might no, have. there was um, there, there, there were there were there are plenty before I, I, the, the, the weapons have got different and I, I have to I tread carefully here because I have I have well-meaning um, well-informed friends who will get very very cross about the misuse of terms like automatic and semi-automatic and <laughs> oh no they're not proper automatic weapons um, as if this makes a, a huge amount of difference um, they're weapons that are very very efficient at killing large numbers of people with minimal effort um, and we haven't really had that until till the till the 20th century. Before that, there was um, I can't remember his name now, but um, the earliest one that we, we we looked at, we didn't include him in the study because um, it didn't it, it didn't fit the profile. But when we started looking at the archives, there, there was a guy who blew up a school with 80 people in it um, back in 1902 or something. Um, there, there, there have always been people who've you know. Where was that? That was in America. Uh, let, let, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up if you like. But I mean, it's, it's not. Wow. It's, there, there have always been people who've killed people in public places like that. I, th- I think that's absolutely fascinating because that's yeah. so counter to the narrative that we received that that spree killings are a modern phenomenon mm. that they're motivated. By, by media depictions of other spree killings. I think yeah. there's something you said. Well, they might still be than... motivated by media. I mean, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't rule that out. Certainly suicide has certain patterns that... There, there are people who are suggesting that we shouldn't publish the names of spree killers. Um, and I wouldn't rule that out as a, as, a, as a responsible media thing to do. I'm not, I, haven't, I haven't made up my mind about it, but I wouldn't rule it out because you are aggrandizing them. Yeah, I mean, you're giving them some of what they want. There's no question about that. Um, whether or not that would stop other ones, I really couldn't say. And there, there is, I suppose, again, I don't know how much this contributes to the amount of killing, but there is the whole thing in internet culture, in 4chan culture of an hero mm. is the term that they use, which is, oh, right. you know, it's a, literally someone who does some kind of attack or tries to do some kind of attack, whether it be the crossbow killer in, in the UK or mm-hmm. Elliot Rogers or someone like this, that they're um, that they are similarly disenchanted male to right. the young people on 4chan's b-board or something like this and that they they it's kind of an ironic term but it's also an actual aggrandizing term mm. especially for people who are maybe not so socially aware and, mm. and there was one that was found quite recently in i'm thinking it's the united states and it was it was written about it was quite unusual because he didn't seem to harbor any animus he just had got really he, i think he was on the autism spectrum he'd gotten mm. really into the idea of spree killing had started getting the guns and stuff and then at just some point prior to the thing, had, had, I think it told someone, oh, I'm going to do this and, mm. and even. But there's certainly some kind of culture around that that does exist mm. now. Oh, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's certainly some people with, with an unhealthy interest. Um, I, I, I'd be very surprised if the evidence pointed to this thing being you. I, I remember the similar sort of things were said about serial killers uh, as if serial killers were a specifically um, sort of modern phenomenon. 
and no, I mean, they're, 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 with any of these things, it's I think what what we've got is increased. Um, the, the media is better than it used to be. It's very hard to cover up these kinds of things. Um, previously, people would vanish and no one would know. You know, the the, the FBI, I think, estimate there's something like like a dozen serial killers in vans or trucks going backwards and forwards across the, the US at the moment. But they're incredibly hard to catch because they've got no connection with with any of their victims so people will just vanish into into the ether and there's you know there's there's almost no way of catching them um but those those things have been happening for a long time um se sexually motivated homicide has been happening for a very long time but we've it's, it's just much harder to hide from these kinds of things now um, everybody leaves a trace and forensics are getting good everybody's got a camera now um you know i mean things like i mean i mean as a, as a parallel case here you know, is it really the case that there are more racially motivated killings of black youth in in america than there were previously i mean looking at the data there's probably fewer than there used to be but the ones that there are are just really hard to hide now because everyone around you's got a camera so if you've got something that's an obviously racially motivated killing by a policeman or something that might look like one um people have, have uploaded it to youtube within within minutes you know whereas previously there would have been a court case there would have been he said she said there would might have been eyewitness stuff but it wouldn't have you know there wouldn't have been those dramatic pictures i think something's very similar with 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 spree killing the um humans have been killing each other for forever um i mean I, this this is the kind of thing that that, that would would anger some of my um um, more, uh, I can I put this nicely. There are some, uh, some, there are some people with a rather rose-tinted view of what human history was like, and I think Stephen Pinker has drawn appropriate attention to just how wrong-headed an awful lot of that is. And quite often, we've we've come across what seem to be completely peaceful tribes, and and we were just talking about Margaret Mead earlier before we started the recording. Sort of come across these people at an incredibly peaceful time in their history and conclude that that you know because they don't have a they're not killing anyone at the moment and they can't remember the last time someone was killed. They're incredibly peaceful. But when you actually measure the number of murders that are happening there, it's it's more than Detroit. When you start looking into their history, you you can't help noticing there's a big pile of corpses with the heads cut off. You know, in a in a in a pit somewhere outside the village. You know, and all this and you know and and you know and, and they they make swords and and um, and and maces and things that you can't use to keep wolves away from sheep and all yeah and that all of this stuff just sort of mounts up until you sort of realize that that, that humans have been quite violent for a very long time and um in, in in many cases it's it's been a steady decline just coming back to what you were saying about kind of the this this idea of men who are kind of gaining status or looning mm. status kind of around the time they 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 might become a spree killer with serial killers like mm. sexually motivated serial yeah. killers which is quite a distinct thing uh, one area that, that's been of interest I was looking at like an archival study where they were looking at uh, child abuse oh, yeah. like it, I think again it was kind of archival evidence mm -hmm. from 50 serial killers specifically from, from sexually motivated uh, serial killers and they were comparing it to like to prevalence of child abuse like in, mm -hmm. in the general population it was interesting that it seemed the biggest, uh, the most prevalent uh, form of childhood abuse in, in these serial killers was psychological abuse, mm -hmm. which was, almost, I think, almost the lowest, like, in the general population. Okay. Uh, but all forms of abuse seem to be more prevalent, apart, arguably, from, from neglect, which mm -hmm. was kind of, which, which I thought was kind of counterintuitive, but... Um, I just kind of wonder what what your thoughts on that were. Um, I don't really have any thoughts about about um, serial killings. It's not it's not really something I've studied. But um, if you if you read Robert Ressler's book, have you all seen everyone's seen Silence of the Lambs? Or the um, uh, the, the the character who was um, the uh, they, they they made a they made a, a remake, didn't they? With um, with Hannibal played by that uh, Danish actor, and I can't remember his name now. Mads well, Mikkelsen. That's it, right? Mads Mikkelsen and and the Will the Will Graham character in that, who's the 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 one who tries to understand serial killers. He is the one who um, 
Robert, um, is it Robert Harris was the author? Based, T- Thomas Harris. Thomas Harris, that's yeah. it, sorry. Um, Thomas Harris based him on, uh, based his character in uh, in Silence of the Lambs on, on Will uh, the, the Will Graham character on Robert Ressler. And Robert Ressler wrote the book Sexual Homicide, which you probably see on my shelf if you look around. Uh, I mean, he's the one who literally wrote the um, the manual on, on catching these people um, for, for the FBI. And he, he makes the point that um, they're, they're mostly rapists who are either killing their uh, victims as because there's a there's a sadistic component to their sexuality or to to to, uh, to stop them being witnesses so there's a there's there's almost always a sexual component to that kind of killing and often quite a quite a direct sexual component i mean they are becoming aroused through doing it or they might be um how that would connect with childhood uh, abuse i mean yes in the sort of the usual ways i mean there's sort of early i mean freud gets a very bad press but he wasn't wrong about everything uh, and he was certainly right that early childhood experiences condition our later um, templates for sexual behaviour. Um, I mean, he was wrong that boys sort of fall in love with their mums, but he wasn't wrong that your boys' relationships with their mums condition their the later templates for how they how they form attachments or not. You know, there's a re- there's a really tragic um, irony about the the work of Freud, um, mm. where he he because I I trained as a psychoanalyst for right. years, and he uh, he initially had this seduction hypothesis oh, yeah. that that he was getting all of these um you know viennese ladies were coming in and saying you know well you know my father did this and my uncle did this mm-hmm. and he was you know this is an epidemic of abuse which mm-hmm. of course it was it may well have been yes we now know sort of every society uh, especially where there are prohibitions on people talking around sections mm. what what happens sexually and so on uh, and limitations on on sexual expression we get this abuse and he ultimately dis, like had this cognitive dissonance, so he decided it was fantasy. Mm. And all of the rest of psychoanalysis comes out of that for good and ill. Some of it is still has some, a lot of merit, but but the idea that that this infantile sexual experience was fantasy and the mm. desire, as you said, for the parental figure, usually that that the daughter for the father. She, despite the Oedipus complex terminology, it's usually the the other end. But that's it. It all came out of this experience of of Freud being mm. given all of these stories of usually quite real abuse and, it could easily have been yes you know and then yeah I've, uh, is it paul mason is it, is it mason who did a book about that there's a, there's a few there's uh freud's mistake and there's mm-hmm. a few other ones but um but the, the the thing is he couldn't i mean he these women were being paid their fathers or husbands mm. were the ones paying for the treatment and it was so unacceptable for yes. like on a personal level because he would have known these gentlemen and mm-hmm. so on to imagine that this happened it was easier to imagine that the whole of human sexuality was based around this infantile fantasy. Right. Yeah. But that might not be entirely untrue either. So. Well, it, does, it does mean that they, they, these things can be simultaneously true. I just, I, I sometimes, I was just reading a, a I, was, I was reviewing a paper the other day where, where um, some, some colleagues were sort of really laying into Freud because uh, it's, it's all scientifically invalidated. And you think, think, yeah, the guy nearly got a Nobel Prize for a neurology mm-hmm. um, because he had a, he had a technique for, for, for staining neurons. Um, he, he did, he did papers on, um, on um, neural connectivity that were so ahead of their time that they've really only been understood recently and you know he deserves a bit of credit for being a pioneer I, I'm not I'm not a Freudian um, you know so I, I have to be clear about this but um, I think quite often he gets criticized by people who haven't actually read him they've, what they've done is they've read secondary sources and come to some kind of conclusion um, you know he was he was a, he deserves the credit that pioneers deserve back to these spree killers what other things have they got in common i mean we talked about low status mm. but what does that really mean is there something that differentiates them from the ordinary person who's unpopular in class are they extremely socially isolated do they have uh, other neurological or uh, psychological disorders what's the um the we, we looked at when we had we had a very broad brushstroke when we were looking at them initially so um they tend to, they, and these are all tendencies so you want to think of it as like risk factors for a disease it's not that you know if you you could 
everybody's got you know a great aunt Bessie who lived to the age of 95 while smoking 40 full strength caps till a day and then you know finally died when she she was running for a bus or something so there's always people who buck trends um but they, they, these are these are kind of risk factors and so things like um school refusal things like uh, history of mental illness things like being in trouble with the police uh, those those are all definitely risk factors and, and the, difficult are there particular types of mental disorder that are particularly prevalent um there might be we didn't we didn't look for it directly we just we just look for very as i said very broad brushstroke was there any any kind of um mental disorders uh, at all um and it'd be interesting to drill down into that. The, the, the second point is that it, it's worth pointing out that with the younger ones, it works. I mean, as a status acquiring mechanism, I mean, the, the appalling truth is it, it does work. They end up in, in prison if they're not dead and they get um, marriage and sex offers while they're there. So, you know, as a as a status signaling mechanism, it's an effective one. There is a small but persistent subset of the female population that finds that attractive. Presumably that not many of them get to leave and, and enjoy <laughs> no. the, the success. <laughs> Uh, which was is a, it, I just want to. I'm sure we, we're all aware, but just to emphasize, this is not a we're not approving of this no. behavior. <laughs> no, indeed, no. We say we, you're talking about it working. It's a, as in terms yeah, of from an, an evolutionary perspective. Yeah, I mean, it it, it makes it makes an evolu- it makes evolutionary sense. That's very different from saying it's morally. Accept- There's lots of things that make evolutionary sense that aren't morally acceptable. Or that don't work in modern society. I yeah, think, ne- nepotism is you know, it's just the obvious go-to example. We, we know why nepotism is there. You know, we know why people are interested in, in their own family. And we also know why we put in mechanisms to stop people making their family members of the government when we do actually stop that from happening. Um, or at least so, we try so, to. So something that I, like I, I was, like yourself, I think probably uh, very enamoured by the evolutionary approach, you mm. know, doing my undergraduate degree and stuff. Um, but I guess it always, it always brings up the sort of the counter question is when when we know kin selection is so powerful mm. the question arises how do we get to a, a civilization at all like how mm. have we come so far away from these drives if they're such powerful motivators not to deny that they are but. i wouldn't say we have come far away from them i i, I think we, we've we've just subsumed them into different things um Kin selection is, you know, it's is is very very visible in 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 all kinds of ways. Um, it's just that we, we we tend to transform these things through through the medium of uh, of our culture, so that in some ways they're satisfied symbolically. Um, yeah, sport would be an obvious example. People feel a real kinship for their sports team, um, and they feel a sense of identity attached to their sports team. Um, which has an awful lot to do with 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 family stuff. So you look at, um, oh, I don't know, the way that. Um, uh, military groups are, are constituted. They use the language of the family, band of brothers, you know, you're going to protect the motherland. I mean, all, all of that kind of language is this language that engages those kin, those kin mechanisms. It's just they're now being being expressed in ways that go beyond those those initial ones where we were groups of you know, 150 odd of us or, or, or less. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. absolutely. And I suppose on that, do, do you think that then, again, I'm, like, I'm asking you to speculate mm. here, but is some of what's happening with these spree killers or other people who are um, breaking into uh, violent or dysfunctional behaviours in order to abstain, obtain status is part of what's happening a failure in themselves or in society to provide an, something that they can identify with or mm. fantasi- fantasise themselves into that's more constructive or you know less pathological um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, it should be obvious if I say things like, you know, ki- killing people works as a status mark. I, I, it should be obvious. I, I don't mean that that's something to approve of. Um, we could um, we, we could remove some of that um, uh, that stuff by I mean, that's, like I said, there are some people who've argued that that we shouldn't even name these people. Um, there, there clearly is an unhealthy attraction to people who do very bad things by a small 
chunk of the population. Uh, it's not just that those people do those bad things. They do those bad things and other people see those see those things as attractive things. Um, could we give them something else to do instead? Um, possibly. I'm not... I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure where I could speculate on a thing like that because you're, you're, you're getting somebody. You're getting somebody who's already um, highly, uh, highly dysfunctional and pathological in that they're not fitting into the society that they're they're a member of, and they're doing something that's that's so extreme that there's there's no obvious way of sublimating that into something that's more healthy. You know, I, mean, I don't know. Could they be playing computer games instead, where they do this and they get stages? I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, you have to be pretty far gone before you've you've dehumanized the people that you spend every day with to the extent that you just you know you see them as targets and and people that you could just crush on your way to um, showing everyone that you're not to be messed with. Yeah, I mean, is there some way? I wonder if, of like say early intervention, for example, or some way that you could kind of how how good are we or how much can we tell from the research about trying to predict someone is going to go down uh, that squeaky yeah, route what, what, what makes these people different because we're talking about common mechanisms uh, common status seeking mechanisms but it's highly uncommon to do these yes. kind of violent acts they, especially where it's uh, not targeted at an individual that's extremely mm. rare so so what do we know about what's the differentiation there what what do i know very little <laughs> i'm afraid sorry i, I, I that's a big disappointment i'm not a clinician um so clinicians will do much more work on a one-to-one -one basis where they'll they'll be cl clinical psychs or or forensic psychs will will be unpicking the lives of particular individuals in terms of of what's gone wrong for them i mean i'm, I'm looking at it from a demographic perspective going well you know if you if you I mean, the operational sex ratio things you know if, if i'm looking at a society where the operational sex ratio has got to something like 111 men to 100 women then i would immediately be starting to go i would watch out you know you're going to get increased rates of riots you're going to get increased uh, rates of rape you're going to get you know all kinds of nasty behaviors now if someone says well who's going to commit those behaviors i don't know <laughs> there will be those behaviors will be committed you know in the same way that somebody looks at um I mean, nobody goes out, gets up in the morning and thinks, right, I'm going to crash my car. But the rate of car crashes remains remarkably constant. OK, I mean, it's in, in the UK, we lose about 10 people a day to car crashes. And it stays pretty much the same. Occasionally you'll get a big crash, occasionally you'll get a day without without many. Um, you've got increased numbers of people dying after 9-11 because people stopped flying and they, they started going in their cars again. So that increased the numbers on the road. So actually more people died as a result of not flying, for example. It's the kind of thing that statisticians always um, uh, get interested in. Um, and you can change those statistics by changing certain variables. So you can, uh, you can make more on the spot uh, breath tests, for example. And that'll lower the rate a bit. Uh, you can make seatbelts compulsory and that will lower the death rate by a known amount. Uh, you can lower the maximum speed and that will lower it. And we won't lower it to nothing, but it, it, it starts becoming... Um, people then start puzzling well okay well i mean what, what, what do you have to do to you know stop that particular person crashing that particular car on that particular day mm. i don't know <laughs> i suppose bet maybe between the, the that kind of big epidem ep epidemiological and the really kind of fine-grained mm. kind of uh, case study kind of approach individualized yes like, you know I'm, I'm not a clinician either but um is there is there some kind of middle ground in terms of individual differences or mm. those kind of predictors like um Say just with the 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 kind of uh, with the younger spree killers of mental mm. disorder. I was thinking, for example, specifically of like antisocial personality disorder yeah. or conduct disorder. Which again, there's kind of debates around that, like how how that's diagnosed in schools and so mm. forth. Say with t teenage say spree killers, maybe if they're a bit younger or what have you. But um, is is there some? Yeah, again, I'm just trying to think about. Is there some way of kind of? Um, 
I would, I, that, no, so that's a really interesting question. I think you put your finger on exactly the problem. In uh, can we can we make a can we make a bridge between that case study level of, of inquiry and the demographic one? And um, the answer is, yeah, I hope so, <laughs> but we haven't done it yet. So um, it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done on yeah. compiling the data around the specificity, uh, you know, the cultural factors, the the individual interpersonal factors, mm. and things things like um, traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. things like. Um, individual alienation because of socioeconomic factors all these kinds of things that mm. presumably have to play a, a part no matter how much we blame the individual there are these factors at play mm. oh i don't think any of these things uh, stop you blaming individuals i, I there's kind of there's there's a false dichotomy isn't there that if we we understand these things at this level then somehow humans sort of will, will lose their moral responsibility um I I'm, I I want I, I suppose I, I I'm not saying you're saying this, but I, I I want to know what somebody's conception of moral responsibility is, if they think that it means something like being completely divorced from all the causal factors that make you into an organism that lives in the world. Well, we, we were just talking about this in the car because you know I have a compatibilist view of free will mm, in yes. the sense that I don't think there's any contradiction at all. No, I, I would between be saying, free yeah. will and determinism. Yeah. Right, sure. and because it, ultimately we are composed of our the the biological determinants that are. are uh, genetic uh, load or, or um, epigenetic uh, uh, th- factors uh, our social um, environment uh, on the macro level the micro level their per- family society but there's nothing else to us mm. so if that leads to a decision we still make the decision even if you could understand all those factors in some mm. nebulous way ignoring quantum physics and yeah. predict it we still have made the decision we are the moderating factor for the decision so I don't understand the yeah I mean, we're, we're the ones that did it I, I, this this is something that um I, th- I think humans find it quite hard to grasp. There's there's a picture that does the rounds on the internet, and it's it, it, I mean it is I think the most terrifying picture uh, that that exists. It's it's the one that it's, it's got a bunch of people who um, you can't really tell initially that they're they're in they're in uniform, um, but they're all laughing, they're smiling. One's got an accordion. They're they're clearly on a day out. They're having loads of fun. And you sort of look a little bit more closely, realise they're German uniforms, and then you sort of see the little caption, and it's it's the people who ran Auschwitz, and they're having a, a day out from the office, you know, away from the cares and concerns of gassing people and then disposing the bodies um but the point is that they're, they're not they're, if there was one psychopath in that group i would be surprised okay i mean there, there might have been psychopaths um as, as part of the the running of, of those those things but the really terrifying thing is that ordinary everyday people did that you know that's the thing that humans really have tough time understanding is that you know there's not something that broke in somebody's brain there are certain mechanisms some of which are well understood like dehumanizing people for example we've got a fairly good grasp of the various ways that humans can dehumanize uh, each other and that's that's not a psychopath thing that's the thing that ordinary everyday humans can do and militaries uh, deliberately engineer in order to get soldiers to do the, you know, the things you were discussing earlier it's hard to get people to do those things unless you dehumanize them so unless you dehumanize the opponents so you you, you do that deliberately now you know as part of military training to get people to do it yeah. I, th- I think you were alluding Gareth, uh, before there was in the car you were talking there's various uh, stages of of dehumanization so it's not something that happens mm often within discourse it's not something that happens all in one go like kind of that phrase you know the banality of evil mm. like the working title is are some people evil yeah. uh, which is kind of a big I suppose all people big... are evil <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean all, there are we've, no we've human beings we've answer this episode yeah all... The, 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 all, the, all, there are no human beings who aren't capable of the most uh, thoroughgoing wickedness if uh, given given the right kind of circumstances and, and a lack of um, insight and 
um, and self-regulation and an honesty about one's own motives. And you know, I mean, I, I wanted to kill someone just the other day because they were in my way in the escalator and I was in a hurry. You know, and uh, I mean, I was I was as angry as it's possible for me to be. But We'd just like to point out we're, I'm sitting closer to the door <laughs> at the moment. So. I, I, I couldn't have been more angry. You know, there, there was no space in my brain you know, for, for to deal with people who, who, who you know, abuse children or something. And that's that's ridiculous. You know, and and I, I, I did eventually, you know, see it as me myself being ridiculous, you know, rather than doing what can happen in road rage or whatever. Um, but sometimes people can't self-regulate and that. There are things to be said about that. Sometimes people see entire tracts of their fellow human beings as not worthy of regulating themselves around. You know, they, they, you, you see people dehumanising each other on, on the net all the time. I think some, sometimes the anonymity is a factor. I mean, we know that that's a thing. We know that um, being, you know, being a keyboard warrior, being able to be abusive to certain people just because they're not actually in front of you, that's, that's a feature of it. And with people like Milgram have examined some of those kinds of mechanisms where you know, the, the famous study where you get people to, to torture an innocent stranger to death with electric shocks. And everyone remembers the sort of the 66% of people who will do that, which is important. But um, what Milgram really did is he found a whole load of ways of just tweaking the dials of what make people more or less agentic in those kinds of situations. They're increasing the status of the people giving you orders, uh, increasing the, the human connection of the people who uh, you're, you're harming and that decreases obedience and all those kinds of things. So we've got we, we have an understanding of a lot of those dials, not all of them, but you know, a lot of them. And but but also, you know, the kinds of people that, that run places like death camps have a very good understanding of those kinds of dials. And they've been very good at it over historical time. You know, humans have been very good at, at seeing other bunches of humans as being lesser, lesser beings. You know, yeah, this one, is this is why we remember the Nazis, not because, yeah. because of their brutality, but because of their how civilized their culture. That was what's so was. shocking. You know, this is this is the this is the land of Schubert, you know, and, you know, and, uh, and, and cabaret, you know, and, and how could they if they if they're capable of it? Oh, my God, you know, anyone is. Well, yeah, if anyone is. Yeah. Well, what you were referring to there, Andrew, that I, I couldn't remember, um, it, it's Gregory Stanton's Eight Stages of Genocide. It's not a psychological theory right. per se, as in it's it's not even really testable, but it's more of a topology. Mm-hmm. And it's, it kind of goes into the gradual stages of dehumanization and depersonalizing. Um, but as you said, it's all about dehumanization. It's mm. it's alienating a group, blaming them for what's, what's wrong in society, giving them a label, mm. forcing them to identify as that label and ultimately segregating and ultimately some kind of genocide. And mm. What happened in Germany, in Rwanda, in former Yugoslavia, um, and to an extent in, in the North Ireland. I was, I was just reading a book the other night about the uh, the Shankill butchers. Oh yes, and yeah, that that's an interesting one yeah. in regards to what we're talking about because they, if anyone was not aware, they're a group of loyalist paramilitaries that they would take people from at random from the street. Mm. They would interrogate them until they sort of admitted some link to the IRA, usually specious, and then they would kill them. But what's particularly heinous because there are lots of things going on on all sides of that time. What was particularly heinous is. Um, one of the murders that they did, they, one of their group was what we would think of as a psychopath or some mm-hmm. kind of psychopath, um, some kind of brute, particularly brutal, violent psychopath. And he enjoyed the torturing aspect. But one night they brought a victim to um, a loyalist club and there were gr- and it, uh, just people gathered having their points. It was a, a, a club, a pub in the area and when 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 night fell and they figured it, anyone here at this point is hardcore enough, they brought them on stage and tortured them Great to death right, yeah. in front of an audience so it's right. that kind of communal violence yeah. which is more scary to us I think than yeah. than the individual we can imagine a monster or even somebody coming under the sway of a monster or a monstrous ideology but that idea of the society sort of sitting by mm-hmm. as, as happened of course all across Europe when we had public executions mm, absolutely so yeah. recently and you read any any book on that and you, you 
public executions had to be made private because they were so incredibly popular that it was mm. dangerous for the people who attended them. They would be crushed. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 very commonly they, they would, or the 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 hang the noose would, the the rig it was built on would collapse because of the crush of people trying to see someone be killed. Men, women, and children having picnics. Th- Thackeray writes about this, doesn't he? In one of his uh, one of his books about uh, I think it's going to a going to a hanging and he writes about he couldn't watch the hanging itself but he watched all the faces of the the people watching the hanging and they were practically orgasmic and, and you see pictures of this at lynchings as well you, you there's a there's a book called without mercy which is full of pictures of lynchings and these were often public tortures it wasn't they didn't just it wasn't just a bunch of guys grab some guy and hanged him they you they, you would invite the, the the locals around they would bring their children wear their sunday best and watch someone being being publicly tortured and then eventually hanged uh, and you see yeah, you can see their faces the faces of the crowds they're having a great time <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the there's the, the famous lynching case of a guy called Jesse Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was in, in Waco, Texas, um, around 1908, something like that. And he uh, was a young man who was I think he was accused of raping a woman, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think it was actually a consensual relationship, but she denied it in order mm-hmm. for her husband not to find out or something like that. And um, he was dragged from the courthouse and. Um, ultimately hung and burned and tortured mm-hmm. in front of hundreds and right. hundreds of people and it's sort of one of the things that actually ultimately it was a lot of media coverage so it led to the development of a lot of anti-lynching mm-hmm. uh, sentiment eventually but it's it's again very very recent and uh, it typifies that kind of dehumanization which which we're talking about you know what you, you, you mentioned monsters before which is do you know what the etymology of I, i'm wary about saying that etymology is uh, you know is the be all and end all but it's sometimes kind of interesting do you know what the origin of the word monster is Monstrari is, is to show monsters show us something, yeah. And, they, they, and I, I've I've always I'm, I'm kind of interested in horror stories anyway because they, they they kind of fascinate me. But they they've always been a, a way of they 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 point at something about human nature. And one of the things they point at is the fact we don't like to face the fact that we we have all these things in us. You know, all of these these features are features of all of us. Um, when it comes to things like psychopaths, um, they, it's not they've got a thing extra. They've got a thing that's missing, haven't they? They've, the rest of us have got a filter that means that we see other people not as just mere instruments of our will. Um, you know, if, you, if, you, if we're talking about sort of evil and ethics, you, you immediately start thinking about the way some philosopher like Kant um, thought about these things. And, and Kant's often misrepresented as saying that something should just be um, you know, deontological ethics some things you just can't even consider but i think the main the key insight uh kant had was that the evil comes from seeing people as just being instruments of your will as not being a, a you know a proper limit to your will that they're they're to be treated as, as as ends in themselves rather than just means to an end and psychopaths for want of a better word essentially just treat everyone as means to an end not as ends in themselves now i mean we don't really use the term psychopath uh, in psychology, we, we look at the dark triad of Machiavellianism, narcissism, lack of empathy, and arguably a dark tetrad. Some people think you should add in sadism as a fourth axis there, and there's some argument about that. But what do those things really boil down to is, you know, do you think you're incredibly special? Do you see other people just as pawns to be moved about? And do you care about them being hurt? You know, and, and if you score high or negatively on, on each of those things, then you, you come to attention as the kind of person who does that all the time. But all of us can be like that to some extent if you press the right buttons. Does that? Does that uh... Sure. I, I remember coming across something in college and I, I don't know how current this is, so please correct me. But it was about um, the fundamental difference. And I'm sure there are many neurocognitively in a, in a quote unquote psychopath or some mm. antisocial personality disorder, however, however we specify it. But it, the really interesting thing was they were talking about conditionability mm-hmm. and that there was something lacking in again I'm just going to use the word psychopath for ease of ease mm. of use in psychopaths where they they couldn't 
be conditioned, even implicitly. Right. So they were doing shock tests and they were not learning. They don't learn from their mistakes, yeah. Which is interesting because that's punishment as well. Mm. Because, you know, you think of the small child and, you know, anyone with kids who's been around little kids there often quite psychopathic mm. be violent even scarily violent towards each other luckily they're very weak physically but um when when they're getting a you know a, a, a shouting at or a you know go go alone time or even something mm. spanking or something that that isn't having no learning outcome mm. and uh, what's the research on, on this currently? Oh, it's not research i know directly i'm afraid sorry but it it, it, it what you're saying certainly makes um makes sense you 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 get you get these sci-fi stories don't you about um you know we've created a super soldier he doesn't feel tired he doesn't feel emotion he doesn't feel pain you go yeah he'll be dead in a week you know because because somebody like that is useless you know if you if you don't if you aren't sensitive to the environment and things are going to harm you and damage you you're not going to be terribly effective uh and you, you get people with analogy you get people who don't feel pain at all and they're in big trouble you know they, they often dam- you know they'll lean on hot plates and really burn themselves or they'll chew their own lips off when they're children that kind of or they'll sit in a cramped position and get uh, the thrombosis or something i mean the, all these feedback mechanisms are really important um and some of the feedback mechanisms we get are about people we've hurt in the environment you know you, you behave badly towards someone and you feel bad you have moral emotions of shame and guilt and now some people don't have those or they don't have very many of those and quite often those people come to a very bad end because you know people don't like it when you, you you don't consider them at all but under the right circumstances it could be that uh, you can have you can have frequency dependent selection is this the thing i should explain sure. okay so um okay so frequency dependent selection means you can have selection for characteristics but only if that characteristic doesn't get too prevalent so um, a classic example would be pizarra spiders so pizarra spiders um quite often um uh, with uh, with spiders the male is much smaller than the female um and males often don't survive their maturing molt anyway and they quite often get eaten by the females in the course of mating or sometimes even before mating um that's what it's like being a spider so uh some of the male pizarras have uh, evolved rather a cute little trait where they um they wrap up a fly give it to the female and then she unwraps it and eats the fly and he mates with her and by the time she's eaten it he's he's been and gone yeah um so he avoids being munched but some of them have got extra cute and some of the some of the male pizarras don't go to all the trouble and expense of catching a fly first they just give the female an empty parcel of web and by the time she's got to the middle and realized you know the box of chocolates doesn't have a bottom layer he's been and gone Um, now this makes the females not trust though males any longer so they'll just munch any male who comes along and and that keeps the population in dynamic equilibrium it's roughly about two-thirds to a third with with the pizarra spiders so there'll be a third who who cheats and two-thirds who are, who are honest now it could be that something similar like that like, like that is happening on psychopathic tendencies that as that if everybody was you know if you've got this sort of nature's red in tooth and claw well it can't be you know if everybody was always cheating and always lying and always out to get each other all the time no one would trust each other so you wouldn't be able to get away with any of this stuff but we can probably manage a certain percentage of people who are like that I don't know. Hervey Cleckley said it was somewhere between one and five percent, didn't he, in the mask of sanity? Although it's arguable whether what he was describing was what I think we that's, would call that. But that, that's approximately the same as what they reckon the yeah. population prevalence of antisocial personality it disorders. It sounds about you know, it's the kind of figure you'd expect. Well, yeah. let, let's talk about that for a second because this yeah. is this is something really I think quite interesting um, in the sense that like the definition of a psychopath or antisocial yeah. personality disorder. So like again, Cleckley's book is one that I remember reading in college, and now this is a long time ago, but. As you say, he mm. seems to be describing what I would think of as more to do with like chronic alcoholism, mm. traumatic brain injury, people with serious impulse control sure. issues, often not violent or if they're violent, certainly not violent against people uh, uh, who are more kind of sabotaging their own lives. Mm. That 
concept has seems to have been anchored to something quite different with the hair psychopathy checklist mm. and then used in different senses, maybe slightly differently within psychology, maybe as antisocial personality disorder. Can you help us understand the differences between those ideas mm. and how it's changed a bit? Well, I mean, Cleckley was identifying the ones who weren't successful, wasn't he? I mean, that's 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 why they ended up in his care. Um, I mean, you, you, you already mentioned some of the things that aren't very successful. You know, if you if you can't learn from your experiences, if you... Um, uh, you know, if you regularly hurt those around you um, and they, they, they therefore, you know, don't want to associate with you, don't want to live with you, won't support you, um, you're going to drift down to the bottom of society. But what if you're already near, near at the top of society? You can get away with that kind of behaviour. You might even get enabled in that kind of behaviour. If you if you come from a section of society where behaving like a total jerk doesn't actually bring any bad effects on you, you could get away with it for a very long time. Um, and if you haven't got any internal uh, corrections that say, well, I'm behaving like a total jerk, maybe I shouldn't be crushed those below me you, know, you can do just fine you know, you could you could end up being genghis khan you know as as reproductively successful i mean it seems a bit ridiculous called to get genghis khan a jerk but you know i mean you, you end up with someone who has li- the, 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 have you ever seen conan the barbarian where conan's asked what he's best in life <laughs> yeah. well i mean that, that and he says crush your enemies see them driven before you hear the lamentation of the women that that's a highly bowderized version of what genghis khan actually said genghis khan actually said crush your enemies um, seeing them driven before you and fall asleep on the white bellies of their wives and daughters. I mean, that's 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 a highly successful, reproductively successful tactic. That's why five percent of Asians carry Genghis Khan's DNA in them. And, I, I, this kind of you make an interesting point about the yeah. privileged class of people who are able to do. Well, of course, he, he started off as a slave. I mean, he he worked his way up. But but, but I, I guess the interesting thing that I'm thinking there is it, it's incredible how often quote unquote successful psychopaths are able to tailor their behavior just enough yeah. not to lose their prerogative, whether right. it be the simple prerogative of a, a homeowning man in Western society or a wealthy um, aristocrat or something. They learn how to play the game, in other words. Yeah. Right, and which brings us to this kind of idea of evil because there's a choice there. If you can moderate your behavior some of the mm. time, you have the choice to moderate it all of the time or at least yeah. great, much more than you do when you go out um, killing. Um, like there's a, the, this figure of the Iceman, I forget his surname, the, the mafia hitman. I was listening mm. to a, a documentary about him the other night and he um he was able to carry out a you know reasonably normal life despite having this propensity mm. enjoyment of incredibly sadistic violence ca- killed homeless people but also managed to productize his violence as as a hitman too right, yeah. but was able to not you know kill someone in his neighborhood or mm. kill someone at the shops enough that he could get by so clearly there's this decision process at work yeah which comes back to what you're saying about guilt and blame and not kind of excusing this kind of monstrous behavior oh sure i mean i wouldn't want anything i said to suggest for a second i was excusing any of it um it's it, i mean it's it's it, it looks like a biological puzzle because you'd think that that um that, that the cleckley folk for example wouldn't be reproductively successful and they're probably not you know the, the ones that have cleckley described in the mask of sanity wouldn't be terribly successful but from a gene's eye perspective if you occasionally find yourself in a, in a highly successful person you know, if you find yourself in a genghis khan and then you kill your, your genghis khan killed 11 percent of the planet did you know this i mean this is i mean it's just astounding i mean not not personally hand to hand, but his armies killed eleven percent of the entire planet, um, and then he was he's then reproductively responsible for five percent of the remainder in that mm-hmm. in that region. You know, I mean, in, personally in, as well. Yeah, per, well, it could be his brothers, but I mean, they're, 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 <laughs> because we, they're, they're, but there's a chunk of male, yeah, you know, well, there's a chunk of Y chromosome that comes from that that uh, that 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 era where every time he sacked a city he would rape 10 women i mean that was and he sacked a lot of cities uh, i mean it was it was an incredibly successful strategy kill off the people who aren't like you um and so, so just, forcibly reproduce with ones who you know had no choice as you point so you pointed out um this initial kind of this 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 book 
there is that issue it's i mean it's a classic freudian thing you're only seeing the unwell and how can mm. you generalize from the unwell to the well um but so can you tell us a bit about how the psychopathy checklist evolved and why that's different from what psychologists talk about when they talk about antisocial oh do you mean has has book yes yeah. um i don't know how it evolved is, is, is the honest answer <laughs> or did Sorry. its influence anyway so so in i know in forensic pathology in america this, mm. this concept of a psychopath is still kind of quite mm-hmm. it's certainly the test is used in prison right. to decide who to release and so on it's as as john ronson talks about in his book psychopath oh right but well, it, we, 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 we measure the dark triad, um, and I think I, I haven't. I don't. I don't. I don't know the particular hair checklist off the top of my head. But it, it, it's. Um, it, it takes. I mean, I think it takes the triad. I don't think it takes the tetrad. So it's. 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 It's looking for questions about. Um, you know, how special do you think you are? Special rules apply to you that don't apply to other people. That would be the kind of the narcissism one. Um, basically, everyone's out for themselves. Um, you know, you you have to look out for yourself in this dog eat dog world. That would be the kind of the Machiavellian stuff. Um, and um, other people's feelings don't, you know, just don't seem real to me. That would be the kind of the lack of empathy stuff. And you, you, if you score high on those kinds of measures, then those would be the kinds of people who, well, they find remorse difficult, for example, because they don't really understand why they should feel remorse. You know, they, uh, they don't understand why they should uh, treat other people just as not as objects of their will. Incidentally, I, I would be surprised, I don't know of the research, but I would be surprised if spree killers are typically psychopathic. Um, and that would uh, serial killers, I would imagine, more likely to be. Um, and why do you say that? Oh, well, because the the um, because the the, the the this this sort of sign of the early signs just doesn't seem to be sort of obviously there. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they score high on one or two of those markers, but um, they. They, they, they certainly feel kind of they, they have this I mean one of the things that they have in common certainly is this real sense of grievance I mean that's that's that that's common to all of these kinds of characters um, but that's 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 the thing that all humans do anyway you know you look at any you look at any of these sort of genocidal actions and uh, one of the things that always presages them is this this sense of victimhood you know the uh, you look at look at the way the Germans are talking about the Jews you know it's sort of, well these people have had it their own way too long they own everything you know they're in charge it's time they got theirs you know that sort of sense of victimhood is very prevalent on Twitter very prevalent <laughs> yeah I, I mean it, it's it's amazing how this stuff just doesn't go away isn't it I mean it just it, it but it, it isn't going to go away um it's not going to go away completely um humans need to be reflective of these these capacities in themselves rather than you know bl- we always blame others for it don't we it's always someone else who does this not ourselves sorry i'm not answering your question say it again please i i've, I've drifted off the point no no it's fascinating i'm just i, I guess i'm just f- focusing on um, this difference between antisocial personality disorder oh, right. and psychopathy. Uh, oh, yeah. Now you're asking a clinical question. I'm going. I'm going to do my usual slippery thing and say I, do, I don't want to venture a definition. Um, the, the I suppose the, the, the one the one point I was trying to make is that we we, we tend to look at psychopathy as, as if it's an illness. Yeah, and um, and it, there's good reasons for thinking that our concept of illness is a little bit too limited to deal with things like this. Now, I mean, see, if someone's been dinged in the head, you know, they damage their frontal lobes. Okay, that's that, that, that's dysfunctional. Okay, there's there's something gone wrong there, and it's it's identifiable. If somebody um, is 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 naturally disposed to not have moral emotions, and that that quality is itself found attractive by other segments of the population, then calling that an illness is sort of stretching the definition a bit and so it's more like neurodiversity uh, <laughs> that sort of suggests that we could we could sort of wink at it and kind of go oh yes let, let's be all inclusive with these kinds of people i mean what one, one of the points that um who, who was the who was the chap who did the the neurological studies and he, he did the ted talk he turns out to be um 
Oh, the, psycho- um, the neurologist who's... Self-diagnosed, yeah. yeah. Um, Fallon, Jimmy Fallon, yeah. isn't it? And it, it turns out he's got a lot of those kinds of properties. Um, but he, he, he uses them to be uh, quite cold and calculating in his work. And you may well like that. I mean, it may well be useful. Someone who isn't... Um, you don't... You know, uh, typically, orthopaedic surgeons are regarded as not empathic, aren't they? This is the big joke in surgery, that orthopaedic surgeons are typically you know, quite cold and mechanistic, and they just, you know, they just see you as a set of joints. But that's what I want from an orthopaedic surgeon. I don't necessarily want my orthopaedic surgeon to be all touchy-feely with me and 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 them seeing me as, a, as as instrumental in increasing their status that's fine you know I'm I'm very happy you know for my only role in the orthopaedic surgeons sorry I've had both knees reconstructed so I mean I've met quite a few orthopaedic surgeons um uh, so for, for 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 me to only figure in that person's life as a way of increasing their status because look at the great job I did on his knee you know and just seeing me in those mechanistic terms is fine you know if there's if there's a place for someone like that in society and they're getting all their needs satisfied then I don't think there's any problem with it the, the the problem comes if if somebody is if people are getting in somebody's way. It's the you know, it's the classic um, Al Capone thing. You know, I never hurt no one, only those who got in my way. Um, uh, and that's yeah, that's that's how he described himself. As long as nobody's getting in their way, there isn't a problem. So as long as their path to the top isn't being um, obstructed by others then then they might actually be socially quite useful but if if what they want for example includes you know um sexually um abusing certain people well there, there's no way of accommodating that there's, there's no middle ground you know they you, you're not going to find those kinds of people at snm clubs for example you know there's this sort of natural assumption that they're going to you know they're going to gravitate towards sort of kinky play clubs or something. they're not because people don't want to play with someone like that you know because they only have their own needs in uh, in mind so they, they they're, they're going to get chased out they may well be no way you can accommodate folk like that in society i mean it's it's not obvious to me it's not obvious how that path would be opened up you know you see someone like i don't know anders brevik the the um uh the uh, swedes are having a real problem knowing what to do with somebody like that because they've got this 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 sense that anybody can be redeemed and he's sitting there going well i'll just carry on killing you know and he's quite you know he's written another manifesto about how he you know how he's very proud of what he did he'd do it again in a in a, in a heartbeat and you think well under what circumstances would you let a person like that out? That bring that brings us back to the kind of question of uh, the degree of social influence versus mm. interpersonal influence, and and even institutions in society behaving psychopathically. I mean, there's a common trope, and there's even a documentary on this basis that that businesses, mm. certainly corporations, mm. act psychopathically exclusively in their their self interest by law in yeah. the United States, and in lots of ways that diminish the individual freedom at the at the mm. uh, at the expense or at the to the benefit of, of corporate profit. Um, and with someone like Andrew Brevich, is obviously steeped in an ideology mm. um, which clearly motivates his actions to some extent at least or at least his superficial motivations maybe his real motivation is you know, to be idolized in some way but I, I think he is what he appears to be i mean i think he, he likes being idolized and i think he genuinely hates a bunch of people I, I wouldn't necessarily feel i had to do anything particularly psychoanalytic you know he, he um but but that hatred is you know is bolstered maybe maybe not initialized but certainly supported given um given a purpose by a whole ideological framework mm. of the far right of uh, specifically demonizing the left demonizing mm. muslims and so on so so there um there there is there is a, a an intrapersonal and interpersonal thing going on there which is not just this individual person who mm-hmm. is damaged like we're talking about who has this deficiency or this different strategy mm-hmm. that there is there is um there is hate as an ideology um which which is obviously powering and justifying a behavior. Mm-hmm. So, so, so perhaps he is someone who would have murdered in any case or not, but we can't know. 
It's it's very hard to know. Um, I, the, the one thing I would say is it it, it doesn't. The, if we look at um, just a quick look at history suggests that it's not that hard to find um, humans who will hate and murder each other. I mean that just isn't difficult to find. What what we've we've got a bunch of people who seem to be self radicalizing. Um, I don't know whether that's new. I suspect it isn't. Um, but I don't know of any data to support that intuition. So by self radicalism, you mean going online and finding yeah. something to that they finding things to. to hate. Yes, I mean, I mean, but it, it, I, mean, I, found, I you find myself doing it online, don't you? I mean, it's one of the reasons I just stopped going on social media. Is you find yourself getting dragged into these rabbit holes with people who suddenly are treating you as an enemy, um, just for merely just for existing. I guess this is what I was trying to get at: is that um, are there are there patterns in, let's say the 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 cyberspace we're creating, the society mm. we're creating online, or the society we've created. As you said, Pinker writes about the, mm. the, the decline in violence. Yeah. But there is certainly an increase in polarisation. I don't know. I mean, it certainly feels like there is, doesn't it? I, 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 I'd be interested to know. There's certainly, there's certainly a local increase in polarisation. Uh, things like Brexit and Trump are you know, highly, uh, they're highly polarising events and characters. So but, but even we, in the immigration debate in Europe, I mean, you know, 15, 15 years ago, 20 mm. years ago, people might have opinions. Maybe they're racist opinions. Maybe they're whatever. But they're, they're not um, aggressively motivated to protect their sphere of opinion in the same way that people oh, are on the immigration issue I'm, today. I'm old enough to remember the race riots in my country in the 1970s. Uh, they were pretty nasty. Um, I mean, I'm not saying things are great now. Um, they're far from, but um, there were there were open open just the open racism of the 1970s. People saying things about people because of the color of their skin. People would not. I mean, I'm not. Maybe they're they're keeping those kinds of things uh, um, under wraps now. But they're not saying those things quite as openly, and they're not taking to the streets and actually killing anybody. They were in the 1970s. I mean, not not in huge numbers because we don't have guns in the UK. Um, but there were people chucking uh, Molotov cocktails at one another and you know, going over to the other, just burning people out of their houses and this kind of thing. And now, I'm, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish and say, oh, everything's, everything's great now, because it, it clearly isn't. Um, but it's it's not obvious to me that it's worse now, because I, I, I can just I can remember it being quite bad back then. I, I guess, um, obviously, that's that's true. And it, it's, uh, yeah, I'm thinking of this as England, mm. uh, maybe because of your hair. Um, <laughs> the, right, yeah. you know, the, there, there's obviously the, a huge history across Europe, of Second World War and so on, of this kind of racially motivated violence, anti-immigrant sentiment in, in against, say, uh, the refugees after World War mm. II, all that kind of stuff. But that's not quite what I was getting at when I was talking about polarization. What I what I mean by that is that there is a, there is a tendency, let's say Twitter in particular, mm. and you mentioned it yourself. That the reason to leave it is because you end up um, in arguments where you become a representative yes. of someone's imagined foe, and you you take yes. on that representation, act as if. Um, because they stre- it's it's the there's an, a term in psychoanalysis for it called reactance mm. where if i if i say oh you're the worst person i've met today your mm. your response to that is not a rational well i can't be the worst person you met today because <laughs> right. you met you know it, it's immediately you become defensive your position becomes strengthened and so on and there's something about how social media operates where kind of a good pro- proportion of what we're doing is establishing positions mm-hmm. and then supporting them or or vo- vo- opposing them, mm-hmm. which is giving us all these strong opinions about things that we might not have cared about before. Yeah, well, things I, I, things I mean, being asked to have an opinion about, I think I'm just I'm not entitled entitled to an opinion about this. I haven't, you know, I just I haven't thought about it. Oh, well, you must think about it because if you don't think about it, that's also having an opinion. There's right. there's no there's no possible not taking a stance on this because if you don't take a stance, that's taking a stance. Oh, right, okay. Um, and and you you we, we're all getting dragged into this. It, it, it's a it's it's not just. Uh, I mean, scientists have a. There's a particular occupational hazard for scientists because 
we spend something, you know, you spend like four or five years doing something like a PhD and there'll be lots of things feeding into that. And you spend a lot of time really getting getting into the guts of a particular topic. Um, and it doesn't mean that you know everything about it, but you do have a set of intuitions about what a in, what are intelligent and stupid things to say in that area uh, or what's what's a fringe thing and what's central what's what's well established and what's you know not so well established and it's not you'd always be right but you get a sense of that and then you sort of and then you go off and you've got that intuition about what, you know, what it feels like for things to be fringe and central and the rest of it and you engage in some other topic and the same intuition flags up in your head but now it's worse than useless because if you think you know something about this then you're you're actually worse than someone who knows that they know nothing because if you knew that you nothing you nothing that at least would be something but now you come along and you, you see i mean you see i mean i've got that's one of the reasons the dunning effect, effect. Yeah, but it yeah. but it works it, it works on scientists as well we think it just works on 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 you know dumb folk but it doesn't it works on intelligent folk too because um they they get this sense and, and you know, i mean i see i see academics doing it and i'm not i'm it's not for a moment saying i'm immune to it but it's one of the reasons i, I i'm careful about being drawn on on areas where i really haven't done the enough work to have an opinion um, because you, you'll see people um, you know, opining on something and, and sort of go, why are you talking about climate change? How are you? How do you think you're entitled to talk about climate change? I met climate change scientists who spent 10 or 15 years coming to a nuanced opinion about things. You've spent 20 minutes on the Internet. Oh, but because I'm a scientist, I can understand that. No, you can't. And you know that you wouldn't go to a conference and behave like that. You know, none of the, none of the, none of these people are sort of, you know, suddenly, you know, having read a bit of... Um, Ridley and going, oh, I've I've understood this. They haven't understood a thing. You know, they're like the people talking about gun control who've never been in a gunfight. Which which brings us <laughs> <in>, to <I guess. laughs> you, know, you, you get involved in these ridiculous discussions. I, mean, I mentioned earlier where people talking about automatic weapons. They go, oh well, you don't know what an automatic weapon is. You know, you don't you don't know how many gunfights have you been in? None. But you know you, you know be, the yeah. same about it as I you do. Can be an expert on gun control without physically being an oh you know but i mean the, these people think they know about what it's like to be in a gun battle or you know what what yeah what 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 the effects of gun control be now i've met people who've had had to handle guns for a living you know army folk or police folk and the level of training they have to keep themselves on that kind of edge so they don't shoot their own colleagues in the back or shoot themselves in the foot you know or or shoot themselves during a long dark night of the soul when they've had a bit too much to drink and then, i mean there is an awful lot that goes into being good at any of those things i think that brings us to like, <laughs> marshall McLuhan, you know and the yeah. the affordances of media if you have this figure of the pundit there is something about the the, the person who appears on television right. as, as a as an occupation mm-hmm. and you are there on television if you're asked a question you're not going to go i have no idea mm. you, you look like an idiot right so some of the <laughs> one of the affordances of television is that it shows you not knowing and right. you appear ignorant right, no matter yes. what the opinion you give and that was well, Marshall McLuhan, was it? Well, he didn't specifically say that, but he talked about hot mediums mm-hmm. and television having its own uh, set of things that were that it did that were as important as what was on television mm-hmm. because of the way it conveyed information. Right. That it seemed real is one of the things. So it, it, when you look at a, a news report, it feels real in a way that reading an essay, you're much more critically evaluating. Okay. It. And that's less about media literacy and more about you just, you know, a neurological effect of this is a thing mm-hmm. I'm seeing. I will give it this truth value. Yeah, it's a heuristic thing where it just seems. But but I guess the point I was getting at was that uh, yeah, we don't have a space to be ignorant or to be mm-hmm. to bring negative capability in a healthy way. Right. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, a lot more of saying I don't feel entitled to an opinion on this. Which, I mean, that's just not that's just not what happens on the internet, is it? Um, Sp- it speaking about expertise and, and lack of it, do you think that the reception for uh, evolutionary psychology? Mm is the same now worse or I remember there's a famous story about E.O. Wilson having water thrown on him when he oh, yes, sociobiology yeah. is, is it as bad as that now or is it as is it has it changed um, it's, it's an interesting one I mean in, in some ways it's just become completely mainstream so um, 
uh, we, we have in, in the UK, um, uh, kids do A-levels uh, as the pre-university um, uh, course and evolutionary psychology is just part of the A-level now, as it should be. You know, it's, it's what kids learn in school. Um, someone like David Buss will come over and he'll talk to high school kids you know, about evolutionary psychology. So in some ways it's utterly mainstream, um, which is good. Um, that said, people's understanding of it um, because the moment something becomes mainstream, of course, you, you become alert to the fact that quite a lot of the understanding can be quite superficial. So um, there are books. I mean, can I name names? Um, there was a book out last year by Cordelia Fine uh, called Testosterone Rex, where the understanding of evolutionary theory expressed in it was so dismal that it's actually embarrassing. And that book has won some prizes. It got a prize from the Royal Society. I wrote a review of it. It's in Quillette. Um, I mean, it's just it's section by section just shows such deep misunderstandings that it I mean it shouldn't even have been published the idea that it's got it's got awards is just grotesque so so it's a kind of a what what can I say I mean it's you know um on the, on the one hand it's a good thing because you know knowledge is increasing on the other hand uh there are there are some such egregious misunderstandings of some basic concepts that some people who really ought to know better and cordelia fine she's she's history and philosophy of science you know she's meant to know better she's a professor she shouldn't be saying things about trivers for example that that are just easily checkable by her downloading one pdf of one of his papers sorry if i sound vituperative about this but you know it's just ridiculous that that this book got the praise that it got and some of that oh, yeah, i'm going back to what i was saying earlier some of that praise came from scientists um who were saying oh this is you know this this book brilliantly explodes sort of myths in here and going why are you having an opinion on this because you clearly haven't read the primary literature you haven't read this book in any kind of detail because it contradicts itself in various places so how is it that you're standing up as one of these and, the, and some of these people are people I like and I admire and they're people who, who communicate public understanding of science very well and yet somehow they felt I have to I have to opine about this book I would have you, to have an opinion about would this you book. say that this book was an intellectual spree killing <laughs> <laughs> um, it was uh, it, it was well I mean it I don't normally write reviews of books on, on my, my blog page because I don't think it's necessarily good use but th this one had such egregious misunderstandings of evolutionary theory that I thought it was worth you know saying that and Quillette picked it up and they, they published they, they, they published it in uh, in Quillette because so, they... so, so not to pick on this book too much but yeah. what what are some common misunderstandings about evolutionary uh, oh theory yeah well I mean the, okay so the, the the basic one that, that that she made and it's it's one that would really be good to get out into the public sphere so then maybe this is my chance um so humans humans naturally think in terms of essences yeah and um that's just that seems to be the way we're constituted and i think that underscores a lot of things like racism and sexism and a lot of these kinds of things we think that certain things have an essential property if the science since the enlightenment has been the replacement of beliefs in essences with beliefs in function so um yeah we used to think that things burned because they had phlogiston in them uh, we used to think that things had sort of uh, they were alive because they had a property of the elan vital this sort of special essence that makes them alive um i think one of the modern versions is thinking that there is a thing called consciousness which sort of exists as a as a, as a special thing in the world that we need new quantum particles to explain or whatever david chalmers now thinks um and and all of this is just is just totally wrong-headed um all of all of this stuff has been replaced with with analysis of functions so cordelia fine's book was all uh, so 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 a bunch of people cut so this this is how the fight 
always plays out. Um, men and women are essentially different, say, seem to say the biologists. Um, they're, they're really, you know, then we've got all these things that are really different about them. No, they're not, say the, say, say the anti-biologists. Biology doesn't explain human beings. It's all, about, uh, it's all about society. There are no essences. And so you've got one side going, there are essences, and one side saying there aren't any essences. And the thing is, they're both wrong. It was never about essences, okay? It was about functions. There are a bunch of biological functions that are non-randomly distributed throughout the population. And if you want to call that maleness and female, maleness you can if you like but you're going to find a whole bunch of exceptions to it so you're going to find a whole bunch of people who are intersex for example or people who are transsexual or you're going to find uh, homosexuality which doesn't fit certain kinds of patterns but if you want to say that these things are just randomly distributed through the population then that's bonkers because they're not okay they are they're they're, they're they're distributed in certain pattern ways and if there's any kind of um, essence it's you know, for maleness it's there there are small fast-moving gametes and a bunch of strategies built around that and females have large slow-moving energy-rich gametes and a bunch of strategies built around that. And Bob Triver's um, seminal papers on this were all about uh, how that how that governs the kinds of strategic options that are available. So that's what all this stuff about differential parental investment is about. You know, it's the, um, the, 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 the sex which has the minimum potential um, uh, investment is the one that can have certain functions selected for in terms of um, um, uh, potentially investing the least and the other one doesn't. Now, what that what that frequently means is that there is a potential male strategy for uh, for being highly competitive uh, and also under certain circumstances leaving the females holding the baby but that doesn't happen all the time there are, there are plenty of species and, and even in species where it can happen it doesn't happen all the time it can just happen some of the time and there are plenty of species where the, the roles are reversed uh, where the females hand the male the egg after it's been fertilised and so the minimum parental investment is um, uh, is for the females not the males so you've got pipefish um, emperor penguins uh oh uh, mormon crickets uh well yeah well pipe pipefish generally have, and some seahorses are sub subsets of those um and in in those the females tend to be the the ones that do the more competing and the males tend to be the, the ones that are more choosy now fine's book completely misunderstood this and it completely put it in terms of essences and this is galling because it's such a central concept in in evolutionary theory as, as applies to behavior that if you haven't understood that you're you're not even out the starting gate yeah and 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 how that book got through peer review and and then got a load of talking heads some of whom have got um i'm sounding vituperative here some of whom have got eminent degrees in their own field standing up and saying this is a brilliant piece of work it's not you know and it reminded me of the kind of stuff that gould used to write in the 1980s where similarly he steve gould, steve gould would write gould, books yeah. about intelligence why are you writing books? You don't know anything about this. You don't know anything about the field. But because it was it was pressing certain buttons, it was saying, "Oh yeah, there's no such thing as intelligence." And, and anyway, it was always racist. Anyway, you know, he got he got away with, with saying some real calumnies about about uh, a bunch of scientists, some of whom couldn't you know even even come back and defend themselves. And it's taken twenty or thirty years to unpick the nonsense of that, so that people are finally saying, "Oh yeah, mm, the mismeasure of man." It was a bit of rubbish, really, wasn't it? It's taken a heck of a long time to undo that damage. And do you think that that <laughs> that, that um, misunderstanding of um, strategies moderated by um, parental investment primarily mm. it, as um, sort of um, excuses or mm. as, as predictive of, of individual male and female behavior rather than as uh, population wide or species wide selections of behaviors? Uh, yeah. that, 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 that that's the major misunderstanding of evolutionary psychology. Um. If, if somebody's going back to their wife and going, oh, I couldn't help myself. Right, right. Um, well, I mean, you know, ex expect to have your face laughed in. I mean, it, it's, no, it's no kind of excuse to say that underlying patterns predispose 
um, one sex to to certain kinds of uh, behaviours over another. You know, there's a classic study. Attractive members of each sex go up to people on campus and they say, look, I've seen you walking around campus. Uh, I find you very attractive. Um, would you like to either? And then there was three options. Uh, go on a date with me, have coffee with me, have sex with me. And roughly the same number of people agree to going out on a uh, on a date and roughly the same number of people going out for coffee. I think it was about 50%. I haven't checked the figures recently. Um, but zero um, women agreed to go to bed with this this um, this guy and something like 70 to 80 percent of the men did go oh no I'm well up for that um, now some people look at that kind of that, that, that study and Cordelia Fine looked at it in the book and she said oh well you know that's that's just because um, that's just because women are, uh, are frightened of, uh, of, of violence or whatever okay well okay well we can, we can test that's a reasonable objection we can test for that do it in your own head okay so imagine you know just as a thought experiment close your eyes and imagine a bunch of your uh, friends if you're heterosexual the opposite sex and now just just um, you know uh, mentally picture the ones that you could just in your mind's eye have sex with now okay so we're, this is this is a fantasy so there's no uh, there's no possibility of anyone's feelings getting hurt no possibility of stds no angry family members no angry partners who might get jealous so you, you you've, you've controlled for all of those kinds of things line up all of those people in a line give them a little wave in your mind's eye let's hope they're waving back to you because it's all consensual yeah and now get an opposite sex person who you trust to do the same experiment and see if the numbers match up just you know and if they do match up give me a call you know because i would be it would be fascinated to learn this you, you kind of feel like you want to call these people's bluff on some of this stuff because they they haven't really thought through the implications of this you know if it really is the case that male and female psychology is just identical but for being written on by by culture well where is this culture coming from well you know again as play devil's advocate this is not come from nowhere but this isn't necessarily representing my perspective yeah, but yeah, yeah. just to play devil's advocate um you know, clearly there is a sort of within Europe, uh, Western Europe, the United States, there is a, a whole reinvention of gender. Yeah. Certainly amongst young people um, in terms of self-presentation, in terms mm. of identification and even in terms of sexual behavior. That does seem to sort of say that at least on a gross level, um, a lot of the things that like say that study would have yeah. observed people's day to day dating behavior and so on is changing in such a radical way that maybe we can't make generalizations about mm. how people behaved in Western culture last you know hundred years of psychology mm. or, or or whatever. And especially because we know that cross cultural psychology is often done so badly because it's so mm. incredibly difficult to find cultures that are different enough and yet you have access enough to do a study. We talked about Margaret Mead and her mistakes yeah, yeah. earlier. Um, so there, so there is there is quite reasonable criticism that maybe we have you know these weird participants you know mm. um, white European I forget what all the letters stand for but uh, industrialized rich and democratic yeah so so that, that that's the criticism that psychology has selectively mm. studied not deliberately but because of access mostly psychology mm. students mostly Western people mostly um, uh, people who have very ser- uh, set, uh, common set of things literacy all these things yeah. and that those that that all of the very reliable uh, results we might have or, or things we might observe even ecologically mm. don't necessarily um, don't necessarily transfer into the human being and so mm. as a result of that many of the assumptions that we make in evolutionary psychology could be just culturally specific or bad. sure yeah no, I mean and those are those are reasonable things to, to control for I mean I don't do a huge amount of those kinds of things but if, if people are interested I would I'd recommend uh, work with people like David Buss and David Schmidt who do, do a huge amount of these kind of cross cross cultural ones uh, Dave, Dave Buss started it off back in the 80s with a with a mass survey of 10,000 people from 37 countries and I mean it, it's certainly true that there are lots of variations but they're variations on a theme um, they're not they're not just random scatters of stuff um 
And I mean, the, you know, the, so the, the, the typical one you don't find anywhere where women aren't interested in status of male partners. Uh, you don't find anywhere where males aren't interested in, in indexes of, of, of fertility of female partners. You find lots of interest. I mean, if, if, if somebody wants to say there's, there's lots of interesting patterns of, for example, gender presentation, then, yeah, that's true. But that's not a new thing. There's always been lots of interesting patterns of gender presentation, quite a lot of which were sort of stomped on by by colonial interests. So um, it's kind of it's kind of new that it and it's a sort of a mainstay of our society, though. I mean, you look at a college class full of kids and it's not like, you know, one percent of the typical kind of thing of research has found over time that maybe five, five to ten percent of people are gay or engaged yeah, yeah. in male and sleeping with male, that kind of thing. But that's like does not seem an accurate measure of how it is right now well it's, it's, it's the claim that there's there's far more homosexual behavior going on now that that well i wouldn't it would want be to classify as homosexual numbers... but you know yeah there's a lot more behavior where people are redefining their own gender or sleeping with people of you know w- who would have been assigned at the the gender that they haven't that, all this kind of thing that there certainly mm. seems to be a mass movement of of things that that contradict the idea that i certainly would have you know mm. developed in psychology and so on that these things are relatively certainly in men, relatively, relatively uh, phenotypically motivated. Oh, well, I, that's one of the interesting things, isn't it? I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of reproductive strategies um, that, that are available. Um, and I mean, in, in terms of things like, uh, oh God, I mean, okay, there's, there's a lot of stuff here that, um, that is, is sufficiently outside my field that I'm going to be, I'm going to have to just pass that on to somebody else. I mean, if, if it's, I'm not aware of any studies that, um, that homosexuality in general is on the increase. Uh, if if somebody wants to argue that homosexual behaviours have become a lot more acceptable in our society and therefore more visible, that would seem like it's generally true. I mean, our, our society was pretty restrictive up until quite recently. Um, homosexuality was illegal up until, was it, 72, 73? Here it was 91, was it? 92, yeah. 93 in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I know, I, I vaguely know a guy called Richard Green who um, was, was on the... Um, uh, the DSM committee, and he's very proud of the fact that he he cured millions of people of of a, of a mental illness uh, by virtue of being on the the, the DSM uh, committee that removed homosexuality as a mental illness. So I mean, f- figure, figures about it up until up until quite recently have been highly unreliable because people could be tortured. Essentially, I mean, it was torture. We we put people into bed and gave them apomorphine treatment or electric shocks and showed them naked pictures of their own their own sex. So you know, you you you, you pretty la- rapidly learn not to express homosexual desires. Uh, in, in Iran at the moment, they, they claim there's no homosexuality. Well, you know, because they have the death penalty for it. And your only way of escaping that is by saying, actually, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. So they're incredibly supportive of sex change operations in Iran. But I wouldn't say that was an entirely positive thing in the Iranian case. Um, in terms of in terms of things like third sex, they, they, there's always been, if you look at the anthropological literature, um, the, I mean, once again, you, know, you have to be a bit careful with um, using sort of etymologies, the be all and end all. But, but most, most cultures have two words for sexes. But if they have three words, which is quite common, I mean, it's not that uncommon. The third one is, is a sort of, uh, is, is males who have a lot of, uh, of, um, uh, of effeminate properties. And if you have a fourth one, it's for females who have a lot of masculine properties. And there's quite a lot of cultures that fit into all of those things. And I wouldn't say that what we've got now is, is unique. Um, but in the same way that it, it, it depends if a culture needs it. So the same thing happens with color words. Yeah. So if you've got if you there are a lot of cultures with just two color words. But if they have two color words, it's just black and white. If they have a third color word, it's always red. If they have a fourth one, it's blue. Uh, then the fifth one is either green or yellow. And then um, then the sixth one is whichever one that one wasn't. Yeah. And it always it always follows that pattern. 
Um, and it follows a pattern of, of necessity for needing to express those things in that culture. It's not, I mean, you, you did used to occasionally meet anthropologists who would say things like, oh no, if they, if they haven't got a word for blue, they can't see blue. Fortunately, that kind of craziness, you just don't hear that quite as much anymore. You do hear it occasionally, but um, this chap's book is a great corrective. John McWhorter, The Great Language Hoax. I can't recommend this enough. It debunks an awful lot of that stuff. Um, I think uh, what we get an awful lot is is you know, things are able to be expressed more. You know, it, things are, it, it is not as um, it, it's not as restrictive a culture. We've only we've only recently made it the case that uh, gay people can get married in Ireland, for example. And the argument was was roughly, you know, uh, it's going to change marriage or it's going to be damaging to children. So if I if I can just and kind of summarize, I guess what you're saying is that we're seeing more of the natural variance, yeah, rather than there's a change in the fundamental nature of people for want of a better. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, someone who does sex research, it's it's fascinating because I think we're we're, we're seeing we're seeing more genuine expressions of, of human sexuality than were possible. But I but I I would caution against thinking that that's a particularly new thing because I think there were cultures that were very much more open than we are. We think we're terribly liberal and I don't, you know, as someone who studies a bit of the history of sex research, I, we're not. <laughs> um, you know, you look at the look at the walls of the temples at Karnachaka or, you know, what some of the Roman pornography was like. They, they were way more open to a range of human experience from pub from members of the pub, you know, pub, public expression of sexuality, not just stuff that goes on in clubs. But, you know, this this is sort of ex, you know, this is OK if the emperor does it kind of stuff, um, which far more of a range than than, than we would be. So do, do you think that moderation of what's allowed, obviously it has social functions, you can control people more easily if you control their sexuality, but do you think that there is a, a, a deeper meaning into how a society regulates these things rather than just historical antecedents of this emperor did this or this parliament did this or we this religion sprung up and it didn't allow... Like, I guess what I'm saying is that are there other things that go in common with a society that has greater sexual fluidity or freedom? Ooh, <laughs> that's a really interesting question. I don't know. I, I, I'd be really interested to know as well because when one of the things that's that's really obvious, I mean, okay, so so what one thing I'm certainly comfortable talking about because I've studied it. There are some cultures that are very comfortable with with female sexuality, yeah, and they they they're very comfortable with uh, female orgasm. I mean, to the extent that um, it, it is something where young people are routinely taught about. Um, the varieties of female orgasm and and how it could be brought about. There are even some cultures where where young men are taken out and instructed by older women, you know, in ways of pleasing women. Yeah, um, we don't live in that culture, <laughs> um, not even a little bit. But we we don't we don't live in some of the more restrictive ones. There there are some where it is so restricted they deny it exists, uh, or they even chop bits off women to try and stop it from existing. Now. All of those things exist on on some kind of spectrum. And what is it that pushes some some cultures down one pathway rather than another? I don't know. I'd love to know. I really. Uh, I suspect it probably has something to do with things because so many things do with things like the ability of some people to um, you know, things like the way that where agriculture allows some men to sequester resources at the expense of other men. I wouldn't be surprised if there are patterns like that there, but I don't know of any. You know. So um, I remember I spent what was it? I was uh, was on on a train in where was i i was in vietnam and it was like a 14-hour train journey uh with this uh, hindu woman uh who told me in great de great and exhaustive detail about all of the the studies that she had before marriage and the studies that her partner had before marriage about mutual pleasure about mutual sexual pleasure now i mean the idea that people in the west would we just don't we don't yeah you know, what, what what have we got we've got porn instead well porn is a lousy educator 
Um, I'm not saying I'm not going down the sort of the porn is harmful route, but as an educator of human sexuality, it leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, but because we're not we're not replacing it with anything else, that is that is the de facto educator of our younger generation. Now that I think that's something genuinely to be worried about because it's not a good education. Yeah, it's like you know as if as if I was teaching a self defense class by showing people Jackie Chan videos. You know that would that would <laughs> be a dumb idea. But that is I mean there's not once again there's nothing wrong with Jackie Chan videos. That's the best analogy. I'm I've a ever huge heard fan of Jackie Chan. Um, and he makes great videos but I wouldn't use him to be teaching self-defense and that is that is effectively what we're doing Um, (laughs) I don't think we're going to top that okay Um, just maybe one more question for you I'm not sure if that's answered your question no absolutely I think think I've sidestepped the question because the thing is I don't know the answer why is it some why is it some cultures um, celebrate sexuality and some don't I genuinely don't know. Religion clearly plays a role, but it. But I thought it was interesting. Just... You mentioned the ecology, though. As well, well that, for agriculture the, there's that thing. book I was going to say. There is Sex at Dawn. Is that their hypothesis? Thing? Oh, the Ryan and Jethro one. Yeah, mm. God, I, I wanted to like that book so much more than I did because there was so much in it that was interesting and good. Okay, um, but they were so, they so wanted to target certain evolutionary psychologists. So there's this big fight in evolution between. Sorry, am I going off on a no, tangent? No, no, no. This is okay. So this is like, uh, is are we naturally are we naturally violent or naturally? Um, naturally cooperative you know are we naturally chimps or naturally bonobos um naturally good or naturally evil and i mean my answer to this is is the terry pratchett one is it is it might help to learn that most of the great triumphs and disasters in human nature in human history haven't come about because we're naturally good or naturally evil but because we're naturally human and that was that's that's just a quote from terry pratchett and it's one i like a lot because i see a lot of people fall into and i think ryan and jetha fell into this of of targeting what they saw as the humans are naturally red in tooth and claw view of evolution. And they decided to do this by going, oh, well, we're all just naturally sex. We're all naturally bonobos. We all naturally just want to have sex with each other. And we clearly can fall into either one of those patterns. You know? And, uh, and, and we, we, we're, they're both available to us. But the thing is, the, 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 the community kind of rounded on Ryan and Jeth, and I understand why they did to some extent. But they ignored some interesting things that, that Ryan and Jeth have said. And one of the things that's really interesting that I think is that they, they really should have attention drawn to is the partable paternity stuff. So there's these, there are these, um, particularly in the um, Orinoco Basin of South America, there are these cultures, and quite often they can be quite violent cultures. Um, uh, um, people like the Jivara or whatever, where the, the the women create a sperm baby, and so they they will have, um, you know, they'll have uh, sperm from the best warrior, maybe the best bee honey finder the best fisherman or whatever and have sex with all of these guys very openly so yeah and the, the belief is that you're creating a baby from the kind of confluence of of these guys sperm and obviously you're not because that's not how gestation works there's one of them who's one sperm has got lucky but they're all they're all investing in the in in the kid um and they all feel a sense of passable paternity in the kid now this is firstly that's really interesting pattern secondly it seems to crop up independently in certain places and we're not quite sure why um and there are some interesting parallels with, with certain high-risk professions, like, uh, for example, wife swapping, which might be more, it might be more sensibly termed husband swapping, seem to crop up uh, among test pilots, for example, uh, in Germany in the sort of 60s and 70s. And I, mean, I haven't actually looked into these data in great detail, but Ryan and Jetha claimed to have done, and they suggested that what was happening there was um, you were sort of amortising risk. So chances of dying were quite high. One of the things you might do is is give other people a stake in your family. Yeah, and now that's a pattern that humans definitely can, can fall into. This was something the Romans did as well a lot. You know, you would have you would have adoptees into your family, and they would be adopted in, and they would be genuinely yours. Now that's the thing that we can we we, we can certainly do as humans. I heard there was some there was some I don't know if this is apocryphal or something about 
Spartans or something mm. that they, they, they encouraged bisexuality or for, for yeah. soldiers to have sex with yeah. each other because they'd be more invested or right. fight harder if they're yeah I mean this the, absolutely no this is well well documented in the Spartans that, that you and and I mean that's that's what um, that's what the Iliad is all about you know the Iliad starts off with you know um, with you know the thing of the rage of Achilles well it's the rage of Achilles having his boyfriend killed. I mean that's 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 why that's why all those people get slaughtered, you know. That's that's why he has no quarter. You know, it's not because I mean he, he's he's dissed because of because of Helen. But the thing that really pisses Achilles off is his boyfriend gets killed. That's why everybody now has to die. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it, it, that I mean that's and that's the that's that's the that's the canon of Western literature upon which you know all other uh, heroic stories are built. So perhaps we should base both self-defense <laughs> and sex education on that particular yeah. on the Iliad. <laughs> Well, I think that that's a good place to uh, to leave it. The great canon. And do you have any other questions, Andrew, or anything else you want to correct, Rob? Or no, I um I don't have anything to correct. Um, no, I mean I'm sure I've said loads of wrong things, but <laughs> but no, pe- you're you're fantastic. Thank you. But people, I mean, if if people are interested, they're they're very, um, very welcome to uh, to um, uh, go onto the website and have, have a pop at me. Some of the things I've said are are from blog posts. Um, and what what's your website? Oh, sorry, Hive, Hive Mind. Uh, Hive, Hive Mind is the name of the website, and uh, and Psychology Today is the, the the people that host it. If you just just Google Hive Mind Psychology Today, that's that's um, and my name Rob Rob King. I've I've recently got onto Twitter, but I'm 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 really really reticent. I've yet to have someone convince me that this isn't just a potential for a, a huge sink of time and energy. I, I I suppose I've seen so so few good interactions on Twitter that I've become wary of it. But I do get good interactions on uh, on online often. Is that is that helpful? Oh, may you have many in the future. <laughs> thank and thank you very much. It's it's been great talking to you guys. I hope I, I hope I haven't dodged too many questions. No, not at all. Thank you. No, thank you so much. And thanks for uh, having us. Yeah, I guess we should. Uh, so if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe if you haven't already. Um, to Psychology in Mind, the feed is called Dead Medium, and that's uh, you'll find that on any podcast catcher. That's also got documentaries, dramas, and other podcasts sometimes too. Um, as Rob mentioned, you can find his work on Hive Mind at psychology today and andrew do you want to pimp your blog well i've taken a bit of a hiatus to focus on this podcast like for the next few months so like, <laughs> i'm sorry to hear that in. <laughs> yeah but it's uh, andrew's psychology archive so there is an archive of my archive there so <laughs> you can uh, dig deep into the archive of the archive uh, well thank you tune in uh, uh, next time and hopefully we will have uh, a guest half as entertaining and engaging as dr Robert King. that's very kind of you thank you very much indeed <laughs>